VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, November the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That requires your participation. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So I'm always looking for ways to try to improve my sleep. I'm not a good sleeper. And, you know, I think that's a pretty common ill or ailment that people suffer with. So looking for different little strategies and stuff. Some don't work worth a hoot, but some suggest that I give the weighted blanket a shot. And so last night I did. I don't know what you think of the weighted blanket. First off, it's a pretty weird feeling. You know, you get that initial, wow, this is nice and snug. But then if you're a tosser and a turner, boy, oh boy, it was like a workout trying to move around the bunk a little bit. So yay or nay to the weighted blanket. Anywho, congratulations to the members of Team Guzhu. They repeat their championship title at the Pan-Continental Championships that were, of course, out in Kelowna, B.C. They open up the tournament losing to South Korea, get their revenge in the championship game, win 8-3, to three. really took it over in the 6th and 7th and stole a deuce in both of those. So congratulations. You know, we focus it on Brad. Fair enough, he's the skipper. Right, so congratulations to Brad Guzhu, the voice skip Mark Nichols, the second E.J. Harden, and the lead Jeff Walker, good title, first team to ever repeat at the Pan Continentals. They secure a spot for the upcoming World Championships, which are going to be in Schaffshausen, Switzerland. Okay, let's keep going. And the Growlers really got popped in 12 over the year, lost all three. Bit of a tight one yesterday in the 2 1 loss, but need to recover from those. That was an unimpressive, uninspired performance in three games against the Lyon. And you heard Brian Medor mention it, and I've been waiting with bated breath to see when Dawson Mercer was going to get off the schneid. Did last night. First point comes in the form of a power play goal. Last evening, they went on to win the game. New Jersey has a lethal power play. That's their 18th power play goal in 11 games, which leads the league. Way to go, Dawson. It was a beauty goal, too. In tight on the power play. Uh, put it up top corner, far side. Really played well last night. Had four shots on that as well. Simple one, but this is an important one. So the annual model boat races took place over the weekend at the Marine Institute. It's a pretty cool event. So eight teams from eight different schools, they build a boat. They get their mechanical propulsion unit given to them by the Marine Institute. So try to test their architecture or the naval architecture and engineering skills. Looked like a pretty great event. And congratulations to all hands who were involved. Let's give a shout out to some of the award winners. Fastest boat, Fatima Academy. The best poster and design booklet, St. Bonaventure's College. Best team spirit, Gander Collegiate. Most aesthetically pleasing boat, St. Mark's School. Most innovative design from Mount Pearl Senior High. Most maneuverable boat, Clarenville High School. And the Super Skipper Award, Kara White from St. Peter's Junior High. Fun event, good stuff. All right. Speaking of the water and boats. So the folks at CNL, which of course the Seaward Enterprises Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, it was co-op week in the province a couple or three weeks back, and we had the co-op group on to talk about the benefits of, and we do know in the fishery, it can really work quite well. So they had a vote, and they're moving from a, potentially, from a not-for-profit professional association into a for-profit fishery co-op. We'll see if Mr. Cleary is interested in coming on the show this morning. So there's three such co-ops in the province at the moment. Petty Harbor, Fogo Island, 
and the Labrador Shrimp Company. And it seems to the Labrador Union, Labrador Fishermen's Union Shrimp Company, 130 inshore enterprise owners, five processing plants, two midshore banker boats, and of course they also own an offshore factory freezer trawler. You wonder whether or not there's going to be more industries, certainly in the smaller regions, and yes, potentially the inshore uh, operators that are members of CNL, to see what a different structure might look like. Because the way that the inshore is currently working is, I'll just say, not great. Now, of course, that's a, not a very precise tool to use, but it's not working the way it's intended to. So they're looking at uh, things regarding more freedom for the enterprise owners. They also talk about price. I'm not sure how that's going to factor into a co-op. But on that front, and Mr. Cleary, if you're interested in joining us this morning, let's do it. It would be nice to know where the status is of the conversation or the discussions, negotiations between the FFAW and the Association for Seafood Producers about price setting. We know that that current structure of a three-person panel to come up with an eventual price, they basically just pick one price or the other. The FFAW submits a price, the ASP submits a price, and they pick one. Even last year when it came to snow crab, the price setting panel itself said, this is probably not the right price. Start the season at 220 pound. Then, of course, after the six-week standoff, they came up with an index floating scale to see what the price should or could be. The fact of the matter is, the market's only going to bear whatever the market can bear. End of story. The end game here is to ensure that there is a predictable and an equitable percentage of the market price shared by both sides. Because that's really what got people frustrated this go-around, is the year prior, which was a banner year, to say the very least, with snow crab, the percentage of the market price afforded to the harvesters was much higher than it was last year. And so consequently was that disparity. Now, of course, you can't bank on snow crab or anything else under the sun to be as lucrative as it was a couple of years ago, but we got to get it right. I mean, it complicated the cod fishery somewhat last year after the six-week standoff. Then all the consequences regarding trip limits and things that are inevitably and relentlessly frustrating for harvesters. So it would be nice to know what the status is of those particular discussions, I'll call them. All right. I heard this conversation ongoing at the most recent Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador conference that was held here in the city of St. John's a couple of weeks back. You know, regionalization died on the vine. And there's a bunch of reasons why. Some people are really quite hesitant to see government lead that project or proposal forward, create some 25 or 26 counties, all with regional governance models, and it went away. So before we get into the fact that there's new municipal legislation, no question, and inevitably, some communities may just have the unfortunate reality that they have to collaborate, they have to cooperate. And this story from the Northern Peninsula, I think, is going to be mimicked by other parts of the province. So the mayors of Rodington, Bidearm, Engley, Mainbrook, and Conch, all looking at forming a joint council to take on some very complicated problems in their area. Now, the population of those four communities is still less than 2,000. They talk about hiring an economic development officer because, you know, for the communities to succeed and to be viable in the long term, when you look at the population decline, when you look at the fact that more young families are moving away from the region, it makes it difficult to see a real good, solid economic path forward. Not to say they can't find it, because there are opportunities in that part of the province. So for either of these municipal leaders and either of the aforementioned communities of Radican, Arm, and Glee, Maine, Brook, and Conch, come on the show. And Dave, let's see if we can reach out to any or all to talk about how this was first established, what their intended goals are, maybe some specifics, where they think the collaboration can lead to a better, uh, a better future for their residents, 
because this is just going to have to happen. It, it just is. Now, we don't necessarily need to go down the regionalization road where some people, including the local service districts, say, you know, you lose your sense of purpose and place. You take away all the attachments you have with your community, and all of a sudden it's just County 21 versus all the various communities that make up that particular regional governance. And inside that uh, most recent legislation that's almost at the royal assent process, the new municipal legislation called the Towns and Local Service Districts Act. When I read it, it really looked like a reasonable approach for the provincial government to take. I am getting some feedback on it saying, you know, this is just uh, regionalization cloaked in legislation that doesn't say the word. I can't really find where it says anything along the lines that the province is going to force anyone to cooperate. And there is no conversation regarding regional governance in this document, but a couple of good things that come from it. Now, the last province in the country to administer a poll tax has been done away with. So now municipalities have a couple of different options. Neither are great. Poll taxes, regressive, of course they are. So is a property tax. So the municipalities will have given another couple of options, a couple of additional tools in their toolbox or belt to try to figure things out. Then there's the opportunity and the option available for business taxes. You know, you can pick a class of business that you will tax. You can use tax breaks to woo a business to your community. Dealing with some freedom and autonomy to do uh, less bureaucracy and red tape. So some 11 ministerial approvals have been removed from the current act. So it's going to take a little bit of time for everyone to accommodate any of the opportunities afforded to the municipalities inside this new Towns and Local Service Districts Act. But if you are one of those concerned municipal leaders which think that this is a cloaked amalgamation or regional government model, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts elaborate a little bit because I get some emails saying exactly that. Not much in the way of details beyond that thought that this is exactly what it is, regionalization, versus what it looks like giving the municipalities a little bit more authority over their own future. You know, eliminating some red tape, doing away with the poll tax. So anyway, that's something probably pretty important if you want to bring it forward. Let's do it. Let's talk a little health care. The concept or the thought that there might be such a thing as a physician assistant allowed to be an operating healthcare professional in this province is not new. But now there's a formal pilot project coming. I think it's worth asking, you know, sometimes a pilot project is required because of a lot of unknowns. You know, you have to see how it can be uh, equitably implemented. Whether or not the targets or the, uh, the goals or successes can be measured. Now, physicians' assistants are already operating in many parts of the, of the country already. So maybe, just maybe, there's a way to, you know, fast-track this kind of stuff. So at this moment of time, these physician assistants are working right throughout Atlantic Canada. I believe they're working in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. So the problem, I think, lies with the fact that some of it, the unknowns, because there's a lot of gray area. So they'll be able to do things like inpatient care, surgical trauma assist, hospitalist coverage, orphan patient report follow-up, cancer clinic support, emergency assessments, patient assessments in primary care clinics. So they can indeed be very helpful to the doctors. Doctors will complain about the old model of how they got paid. They'll complain about all the administrative work associated with operating their clinic. And yes, maybe there's no need to see an actual MD for some of these minor injuries or concerns. So the issue will be, if you open up the opportunity for physician assistants to operate and to work in this province, and then let's say it's mimicked beyond Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, let's say you bring in BC to the fold. Then all of a sudden, what we're going to see is the same thing we're seeing with other healthcare professionals now. 
there will indeed inevitably be a shortage. So the province is going to hire 10 for a three-year pilot, but if we understand how it works elsewhere and feedback from colleges of physicians and surgeons and medical associations in other provinces, where the physician's assistants are operating, where they are working, and what it's meant to the day-to-day -day life for the patient and for the doctor might be very helpful. So we're moving forward with it. They're going to be operating in five different locations to begin with. The Charles S. Curtis Memorial Hospital in St. Anthony, Western Memorial Regional Hospital, of course, in Cornerbrook, the James Patton Memorial uh, Regional Health Center in Gander, the Buren Peninsula Healthcare Center in Buren, and at the Janeway Children's Health and Rehabilitation Center here in the city of St. John. So yet another healthcare professional that can absolutely be part of it. In addition to this pilot, you wonder where the whole thought surrounding midwifery went. You know, inside the health corps, they said that obstetrics unit in Central should be in Grand Falls, Windsor. The province is now committed by the end of the year, sometime this year, to have an obstetrics unit fully staffed and up and running in Gander. But what about the midwife? You know, when they were discussing it as a provincial government, I think there was a lot of people thinking, of course, with uncomplicated pregnancies, maybe a midwife is absolutely what the doctor ordered. So it kind of went away, and I don't know what the status of it is, but it was talked about as if it was going to be a major contributor to healthcare and in ups inside the world of obstetrics, but it kind of went away. We do know that the province is launching expanded virtual care uh, up and running soon in New West Valley. Still some of the looming questions. Who are the healthcare professionals that will be on the other end of the screen when you are getting virtual care? You know, there cannot be any of our current employed doctors brought into that fold, an American for-profit company. We also need to know what they're going to be paid because we've seen what happened when 811 results in more of a fee, a higher fee for that service than maybe the doctor's able to bill after 811 refers them to the doctor. We know what the issue is inside the travel agency nurses and the difference in pay between those nurses and employed by the provincial government registered nurses on the floor. So the province built in a clause that said, that company is not allowed to poach, but it doesn't say that doctors working here, if they find out that doctors working in virtual care are making more money, it says nowhere in the contract that they can't simply move from their current practice into this suite of virtual care, so still a lot to be understood. In addition to that, virtual care can certainly be helpful, and it's not intended to be able to deal with everything, like severe chest pains or a stroke or what have you, because of course you need in-person treatment and emergency treatment if those are your concerns. In Ontario, they did a close evaluation of the numbers of people using virtual care early on in the pandemic and what it meant for a decrease in numbers of people presenting at emergency rooms. And what they found out was it didn't really have the impact as was described or intended when it was launched or expanded. You know, we've had the, the need to do all our meetings on Zoom and all the rest of it, but they didn't find a huge implication of diverting people from emergency rooms. Here's a couple of uh, high-level numbers. 13% of people went to the emergency room within three days of a virtual visit. Almost 22% did so within a month of being seen via video call or by phone. So, what that basically means is it did not divert as many patients as uh, people hoped it would from ERs and then add into it. You call 811, we pay them $82 per call, they refer you back to a doctor, the doctor then bills MCP, you take a virtual care uh, appointment with someone who knows where in the world, and then, consequently, in the case in Ontario, where the study was done, more people than they thought went from there to the virtual care right to the emergency room.
So we got double build again. You know, maybe some people just want the old traditional approach that they've always taken to go to the clinic, to go to the emergency room versus a virtual care because it's new. And for many people, it just doesn't feel like you're getting the same type of and level of care that you would if you were in person, face-to-face, with your MD, your family care doctor, or your primary care team. But anyway, not necessarily doing what it's intended to do in the province of Ontario. But let's go to Nova Scotia. So the premiers from the, across the country are meeting in Halifax, the so-called first minister's meeting. It's always going to be the same type of issues on the agenda, right? The big high-level ones, and of course they're important. Cost of living, I'm not really sure what kind of cooperation or understanding we can glean from speaking with other premiers, but fair enough. But again, back to healthcare, They will be talking about the unnecessary poaching, bidding wars associated with trying to recruit actively and aggressively healthcare professionals, whether it be doctors or anybody else, from province to province. Hopefully, they can come up with some sort of metrics that will be acceptable as the model or the pathway because if we just end up in a bidding war, as you've heard me say many times before, we're not improving anything. Some performances of healthcare delivery models in one province may suffer. Some might be incrementally better, but that is absolutely not the answer. Then they talk about clean fuel regulations and carbon pricing. Hmm. Lots of those. If you want to talk about the three-year carve out in the pause, but there's a school of thought that says quite clearly that the Liberals didn't even necessarily believe what they had been saying over the years with the implementation of a carbon tax, and yes, the quarterly rebate. So this carve-out, it might be the end of the carbon tax. I'm not going to say it absolutely is because I don't know, but it really feels like it. And if this is all political calculations, and much of it is absolutely that, there is no randomness in politics. The calculation regarding timing and impact is always going to be where they start these discussions. But anyway, you want to take it on. And of course, with the fact that New Brunswick and Nova Scotia have absolutely walked away from any participation in the Atlantic Loop, which was also predictable, given the fact that it would just be a cost to them, no revenue, because they weren't generating any of the power. They were simply going to buy hydro from whatever form, fashion of a marketing scheme or tool that the so-called Atlantic Loop was. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is uh, openline at vocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Mike's going to kick it off with Search and Rescue. Katie wants to talk about school zones, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Katie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. How about you? Not too bad for a Monday morning. (laughs) Fair enough. The weather getting colder. Um, So I just want to talk about, um, I guess, speeding in school zones. I was just, well, I have three of my own kids, so I was dropping them off and then on my way to town this morning. Um, usually it is speeding in our school zone and St. Phillips is not quite an issue, but coming into St. John's, um, just driving through Monday Pond Road there on, uh, in front of St. Teresa's school, um, in specific, cause I drive through it every day. Um, and having my own kids being very mindful of my own speeding in that area, but there was a dead dock on the road and apparently someone had just hit it. So I took it upon myself to move it out of the road cause people were not slowing down, which is right in front of school. And, uh, yeah, just sat there for a few minutes witnessing how many people were actually speeding. Um, there was city buses, people dropping their own kids off, people just leaving from dropping their kids off, um, just people passing through. It was alarming. And um, God forbid that doc was a child, to be honest. I was, uh, I was pretty perturbed, to be honest. 
I live in a school zone. Well, my home is a couple of streets over from the local neighborhood school and never ceases to amaze me. You know, people will be disgruntled when the flag person is trying to slow them down so the children and their families can safely cross the street. They get just a couple of centimeters out of the school traffic area, well, I'll say with the, the kiss and ride and the drop-off zone, and then all of a sudden back on the loud pedal zipping down the road. Right. You know, it's, it's remarkable to me that they're willing to take that sort of absolute risk in a place where children are all over the place. You know, and this yeah. is only a small neighborhood school, so, you know, but there will be a couple of hundred kids inside that 15-minute window who are just trying to safely navigate their way out of the area. And people just refuse to just relax for a minute. You'll get where you're going. It's just like even if you're on a main thoroughfare where there is no school, we're all just racing to the next red light. Right, and it's hard to slow down in that area, I guess, where the... The road is a bit wider, and, you you know, it's a straight road, so people tend to forget how fast they are going, whereas um, where I live, it's a little bit more of a narrow street, so it's, it's easier to slow down. But, um, like, you know, the speed limit signs aren't really functioning from what I was able to notice, um, especially on one end because I was coming in that direction. But, yeah, it's just like... You know, they're speeding through the school zones. There's children all over the road. There's, you know, people even just walking their dogs. Like, there's no, it just doesn't seem to be any need. And do you really want to hit a kid on a Monday morning? Maybe put that in your mind when you're driving around, even on any morning, to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. It's, uh, again, and some of the misunderstanding about what the rules are, even when we talk about school buses, it doesn't mean that you only have to stop if you're behind the bus. You could be coming in the opposite direction. When the stop sign is deployed and the lights are flashing, we all have to stop, regardless of what direction you're traveling. So little things like that, they'll just make a big difference. So uh, your point is well taken in this uh, this. Uh, host's head because it kind of scares me when I see people that are acting so recklessly and aggressively anywhere but especially in the school zone yeah and I did I did encounter like it must have been like four close calls on my way in like on a totally different note Um, but yeah there's just no need I know everyone's in a rush on a Monday and we're all coming out of the time zone change on the weekends and whatever but Come on, guys. <laughs> let's let's, let's we'll open our eyes a little bit and wake up. Fair enough, Katie. I appreciate the message. All right. Thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. I mean, we all see it. See it all the time. And even in some of the areas, it doesn't even have to be a neighborhood school zone, is when you put in some ca- traffic calming measures, right? The curb bump outs or the speed bumps. And one of my kids actually said it to me one day because they put it on the big street uh, where I live, is people will slow down to take on the speed bump, but maybe go a little faster between speed bumps to make up for the lost time, which, of course, we're talking about seconds, not minutes or hours, actually just seconds. Let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, Back uh, a couple weeks ago, anyway, I got stuck in the woods. I went up on a rock. And... uh, well, some people call them bags, but it's not really bags. It's called pins, F-E-N-S. And it's on a trail that uh, is 150 years old, and at least that I can date it back to. And uh, back years ago, this went into Black River Pond that was dammed, that was made into tree ponds. They had 200 people in their lagging, using, running in over this country. This country was always used and been continuously reused back into the 1800s so anyway i got reported uh for being on the bags and that whatever to the wildlife department and because i said you know like i got stuck but newfoundlanders don't have a clue what a fin is their fins are they 
don't know what our bags are or what makeup of it is. What, what These the, are just just for uh, the for, for clarity. What would the difference be in day-to-day life if people realize the difference between a bog, a muskeg, a fen? Because fens, as far as I know, are basically peat. Uh, and I think many people in different parts of the world call them the muskeg. So what would be the no. difference in understanding the, uh, the makeup of a bog? Uh, well, these fens are grassland built on rocks. Grassland, wetland, yeah. Two feet deep or so, right? Now, they were designed by whoever created this earth to be of the same principle as the plains of Serengeti and, uh, and the buffaloes on the prairies and that stuff. You have big migrations that goes over this grassland that their hooves in the spring or two, twice a year tear up the bags or the fins and push the dead grasses down into the bag to rot and then the roots can get the sunlight from the uh, some of the sun to to grow again the next year. Now in Newfoundland, we got the same principle here as on the prairies and these big herds, but the caribou. Now we got the caribou gone, pretty well weeped out. The caribou are not going in over this stuff. What's meant to do is that the caribou, hundreds of thousands or whatever, crossing this island, whatever was here, back thousands and thousands of years ago, would migrate. Their hooves would push down the dead grass. They leave the grasses open for the sun to get at the roots to repeat it again next year. So twice a year, these bags were meant to be trampled in order to grow and survive part of the evolution of whatever somebody wants to design, whoever designed it was a lot better than me, that's for sure. But anyway, this bags or fins or whatever you mind to call it are meant to be disturbed every year twice a year. That's into the history of it and everything else. Now, this country isn't being traveled. It's not being used. So the fins are all going to die. So we've got our rules and regulations here now that the government is trying to enforce us with that is going to be destroying these fins because the dead grasses are all going to build up. They're not going to be able to get the sunlight and then they're going to turn into something else, which is still also part of evolution or whatever you mind to call it. But the, but the, the thing is with it is that uh, when you go into this country, like we don't have the people here, as far as I'm concerned, that understands it, knows anything about it. Newfoundlanders don't know anything about it. And the boy rights going in over these bags and that and stuff, the way we've done it for hundreds of years. Look. I'm living here now. I got a, a hill over behind me. For hundreds of years, there's berries there, blueberries, parish berries. Our ancestors have survived on these for the live through the winter and that and everything else. Now you're not allowed to travel on or anything else. The beers are gone. The parish is gone. The berries are gone. Parish berries, blueberries. You can hardly find one because it needs to be disturbed. It needs to be uprooted. It needs to be walked over. Now we don't have the animals to do it. Man has got to do it, or we're in their big environmental changes that may not be into the best interest of these things and everything else. But we got a government that you can't talk to, you can't explain nothing to. They got the one way track that, oh, we're just going to bar people from doing things. And it's totally, utterly ridiculous. And like I said, look, I've told wildlife before I'm going in over this country, I'm going in over it again. I'm going to go in around the Argo on these trails. If you want to charge me, 
I'll tell you where I'm going into at what time. If you want to come in Thursday, go right ahead. Okay. So, Mike, is it, hold on. Is this about the thought that there was going to be potentially more parcels of land protected? Is that what this is about? No, what it's about is that uh, this was before all of these protected lands and that stuff now, but, you know, when they brought out the laws governed the bikes and everything going over these uh, these wetlands, uh, they never considered the history of, like I said, the, the plains, uh, what these bags were designed to do and how the growth all works. They think that they're doing great. Oh, we're going to stop bags, stop anybody from going in over the bags, anybody from going in over this country. What? We're going to save it pristine, and nobody's going to see it. We're going to destroy it a lot faster than the, than, the, than the machines going in over it. Like, there's two sides to everything. And what we got here, we got a bunch of people now that report to me that don't realize where I was to, what I was doing, or whatever. And uh, like I said, I brought up on the rock, and I had to call search and rescue. Everybody would have died. And uh, then I guess people call me in. About instead of minding their own business or inquiring about where we were to or whatever, are reporting me to the, the wildlife department that I should be charged for being on the bags. Well, I wasn't on a bag. I was on a fame. I was on a trail that is at least 150 years old. Muskegs, excavators, uh, bobcat, uh, you name it. And they've been going in over this country and being used for hundreds of years our grasslands are doing great. Now, if you leave it alone, we're going to lose the marshberries. We're going to lose the bay couple. We're okay. going to lose all of it. But, Mike, you're saying that unless people are allowed to take their argo in over a fen that will uh, naturally die, because fens are you know, fed by a steady source of water, unlike a bog. A bog is generally speaking, a depression that captures and collects rainwater. So they're kind of two different things on that front. So you're, But, I mean, how can we do whatever with the bears that are not there, the caribou are not there? Are you saying that without your argo present in a fen, it's going to die a natural death? Well, what I'm saying, without activity, without the caribou, without the argos, or without the something disturbing it, uh, yes, they're going to turn to mass. The dead grass is going to build up on top that the sunlight is not going to get at the roots and they'll eventually turn into something else that is a, like a a marshy, I don't know what, what you might call that but uh, yes, it will it will, will eventually turn it into uh, not grassland but it'll turn it into then another type of environmental structure or whatever right. and uh, like in here is a Black River uh, that was a big operation one time. Like I said, there was 200 people in there cutting wood until the great fire. Well, the mill in, uh, in uh, Garden Cove failed. The first load of shipment went out, died or whatever, but they had the dams okay. floating back then. And this country all had plenty of activity. And now they're telling me that I can't use it when, as far as I'm concerned, it's, uh, it's an environmental disaster F is not done it got to be done in the right context I'm not saying going in there and tear up the bags and dig it all up they should be allowed to do but I'm what I'm saying is that normal activity of people and that and everything else are riding in there on an air or whatever it's not hurting them it's helping them this is our nature this is the way nature works this is the way it was built yeah, but Mike a hundred years ago or 150 years ago the references you're making nobody had an Argo 
right? So animals would oh, tread yeah. through the fence. I'm talking. Animals would yeah. go through, or people would go through. That would be their boot prints, not their argo tire. Right, but yes, sometimes it was the boot print, but they had machines in there and everything else. After the caribou, oh, we had the caribou. And what happened then, what destroyed the caribou was the construction. And then people started going in there with machines and everything else. They had the biggest kind of machines in over this country. It's a big activity. It was industrialized. And now it, it failed and it went back. Now we okay. don't have the caribou. Now we don't have the activity. Okay. Oh, it goes to show that oh, the Serengeti, the plains, our prairies, everything else needs a big migration of animals. To keep it going, they travel over it. They travel the grass. They dig up the soil. Okay. Tap onto it. They fertilize it. This is the structure that we had here in Newfoundland before man took it over, and man started running it. Now man is running it, and man is going to destroy it. Whereas our nature of our natural habitat of the caribou and that and everything else and destroyed right. it. So away. Commercial activity destroyed the habitat, consequently the animals went away, and now we're saying at the exact same breath that more activity in an effort to save the fence? It's well, a bit of a contradiction the there, but because no, no, the animals no. are there or the animals aren't there. Mike, very quickly, because I'm, go I'm going to go to the break here now, but very, your last thought, and quickly. Uh, what I'm saying is that, look, when the animals left, we were in there and we were used. Everything was all going along good. And now... Uh, we've got the animals gone, we've got the activity gone. All right, find somebody from the university, somebody who studies this there or whatever. Uh, let them come on with a grain of sand. Not these fanatics that don't think or can't see the woods or the trees. To come on and explain to us why, you know, that these lands, in order to preserve them, what I'm saying is that they've got to be disturbed one way or the other. Okay, Mike, now, point taken. Understood. Right? Appreciate the call. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Ben's there to talk about Movember. And then the Minister of Digital Governance Service, Alice Harris, totally she's in the queue to talk about a variety of issues. There are so many that I can't even read them in my subject bar. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Ben Oates with the Mon Engineering Society. Good morning, Ben. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How you doing? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. I'm calling today about, uh, just to let everybody know about uh, what Mon Engineering Society uh, B is doing. We're doing a, a Movember fundraiser uh, in support of Men's Health Initiative. So I just want to call and talk about that. Let's go. Uh, so Movember, is a, it's a charity, it's a national charity that uh, every November uh, it raises money for a wide range of men's health initiatives. Uh, started out mostly bringing awareness and, and helping out for research for uh, prostate cancer, but it's moved, branched out into, uh, you know, testicular cancer, prostate cancer, and mental health. Uh, so on Engineering Society, which is the student group that represents uh, 1,200 engineering students at Memorial, um, one of the guys on Society, Jordan Kareen, got us all together uh, and decided to, uh, we decided we're going to do some, uh, we're going to do November. So, um 
We're uh, working on growing the stashes out right now. Looking a bit patchy right now, but uh, we're working on it. Yeah, on the sixth, the uh, early so- uh, soup strainers are less than impressive. But hey, <laughs> it's a it's a great initiative, and I think in the world of mental health, they've also specifically expanded to talk about suicide prevention because men die by their own hand in far greater numbers than women. So I'm pretty sure that's also a focus area for Movember as a charity. For sure, yeah. Raising awareness is is the biggest thing. Uh, we we had a good chat about it, uh, you know, amongst ourselves. And you know, me personally, I've you know, everybody deals with something, but uh, you know, I've dealt with my own struggles as well. I've just come to terms and on a path to recovery. And uh, you know, the number one thing that I just needed to do is that, you know, if if you're struggling with with something, uh, you don't need to struggle alone. Life doesn't have to be like that going to get better but you know you, you gotta the, the last act of courage you need to have is just to reach out and get some help so inside that world is there going to be anything formal inside your group beyond just making fun of each other's mustaches throughout the month you know like actual panel discussions or informal uh, attachment or pardon me uh, informal focus on some of the areas that movember as a charity focuses on so how's it going to work um, so right now we're just we have a team page through November that we're raising money for. But in terms of just you know informally we're going to go about and just you know make sure everyone's doing all right, checking on the checking on, on everyone, you know not just the boys, and make sure we're you know you know taking care of each other. Engineering's a hard program, uh, but it, there's a good quality life. Engineering is a team sport, so we got all got to stick together, and not just engineering. Any anybody who's dealing with stuff. Band together will be all right. But that's a good idea, actually, Patty. I might I might have to put something together, maybe a little fireside chat or something yeah a couple of guest speakers far be it for me to tell you what to do i think you guys are on the right track a couple of guest speakers on those types of topics because sometimes even when you know people with lived experience are willing to tell their story that's probably the most illuminating stuff we can all experience you know it's fireside chats and you know being open and honest with each other about how you feel because boys don't like talking about their feelings but when we don't we know what the outcome can be so anyway i was just spitballing off the top of my head now that's a good idea. I might, might have to pursue that. Might have to get the breezeway on the go or something. And <laughs> Not a bad idea at all. Do you have any favorite slang references for mustache yourself? Oh, there, there's a couple. Uh, you know, crop duster, uh, loathe them. Uh, <laughs> Some I probably shouldn't share. <laughs> probably not. Yeah, I like the bro meringue. The bro meringue or the upper lip holstery. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Terrible stuff. Ben, so give us the the web page that people can go to to make a donation. And do you have a, a fundraising goal in mind? Uh, yes, yeah, so we have a fundraising goal of I think we set we all set our personal goals. Uh, mine's two hundred. I think we set a team goal of two thousand. Uh, if people are looking to donate, you can go to Movember dot com. That's M O V E M B R dot com. B E R. Sorry. Dot com. Uh, go to the search bar. Go donate to a team and search up Mun Engineer Society B. How many on your team? How many people have committed to being part of this? There's nine of us. So we're all members of the Engineering Society, uh, the male members of the society. Uh, just all got together and, and decided to do that. So, uh, so, yeah, the Engineering Society is in charge of planning. We, we represent, uh, you know, Mun Engineering students. Um, we also plan social events for stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, so we decided this would be a nice thing to do. We're trying to do a bit more fundraising. We're not just party people anymore. So, uh, yeah. Engineering, when I was a university student, was famous for their mixers, I can tell you that much. Uh, ben, where are, where are you in your uh, engineering pursuits? What year well, are you? I'm in, my, I'm in my fourth year, uh, so term six. The way, the way engineering does it, they do, uh, you know, you do your general first year, and then you go work term school, work term school, just yep. flip-flops to the end. But, yeah, I'm in term six, fourth year, one year to go, getting close. Uh, good for you. And what, uh, what discipline of engineering are you 
studying? I'm mechanical. Mechanical. Good to have you on the show, Ben. Good luck to you and all hands uh, growing the mustaches and bringing some attention to the issues regarding men's health, whether it be testicular cancer, prostate cancer, mental health, suicide prevention, all extremely important conversations, and we appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, Patty. Appreciate it. I uh, hope to have a good set of handlebars by the end of the month. Atta boy. That's what I like to hear. Good luck, Ben. <laughs> Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I used to rock the mustache when I was young. <laughs> I'm not so sure about... Uh doing it today. All right, uh, let's try to take a break right here on time and uh, stay right there, Minister Studley. You're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the Liberal member from Mount Sio. She's the Minister of Digital Government and Service and L. That's Sarah Studley. Good morning, Minister Studley. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? I'm excellent. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, we've had a busy sitting in the House of Assembly so far, uh, some major changes to some bills, so I thought I'd uh, call and give your listeners an update. Sure. Let's start with ride sharing because there's long been people clamoring for ride sharing apps like Uber or Lyft to come to town. We do know that the cities or municipalities deal with the cab companies, but uh, this ride sharing will have to be provincially legislated, I suppose, because I might order one in downtown St. John's with a destination in paradise. So there's got to be that provincial attention to it. So where are we? Absolutely. So um, we had made changes last year to try and make things easier. And, uh, you know, we didn't see any rideshare companies enter the market. Um, so we've kind of stepped it up a notch. Uh, so now we've introduced a provincial approach. So uh, and we also heard from ridesharing companies that they were really nervous about the difference in each municipality, as you mentioned, um, and just the potential for different bylaws, you know, between, you know, Matt Pearl, Paradise, St. John's. Um, so we you know, in consultation with the municipalities, um, we now have introduced, uh, it'll hopefully get more or less done soon, um, a provincial approach whereby there's one common set of rules for ride-sharing companies. And based on our discussions with um, some ride-sharing companies, we believe that this will be enough to bring ride-sharing to Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, so we're working on the regulations right now, um, and I'm hoping those will be ready in a few weeks, and then ride-sharing companies will be able to apply to motor registration for a provincial license. Um, and, you know, we will uh, oversee and regulate that, um, and then they can start to recruiting drivers. Made changes to uh, licenses, driver licenses. No longer would you have to have the physical test and the road test. You can just, you know, do, do it a different approach to move from your class five to class four. I think that's how that works. But the questions remain insurance. Will they have to face the same type of insurance uh, implications that the traditional cab companies and their drivers face? Will there be worker protections in the form of compensation and other benefits that are associated with things that are not the Ubers? Because they don't have those in place. So let's start with insurance. So uh, that's an excellent question. And uh, so the insurance, so in order to be licensed as a rideshare company, the companies will need to have appropriate insurance for their drivers. Um, and so um, we have a list, uh, our superintendent of insurance has a list we've now given uh, potential companies interested of companies licensed here who offer ride-sharing insurance in other provinces. Um, so we don't anticipate that to be an issue. And actually, last year, we also um, essentially released a, a ride-sharing insurance form that's available for anyone uh, interested in having a ride-sharing company. Um, I think the challenge with the taxis, uh, you know, they... they it's like a closed pool here in Newfoundland and Labrador, right? So when you think about taxi accidents, like the cost of their insurance is the cost of their accidents in the previous year. You know, it's not quite that simple, but it's almost that simple. Um, and so, you know, this could be an opportunity for taxi companies as well to kind of expand their business. You, you know, we might, I'd certainly encourage them to look at like 
you know, having a rideshare company in addition to uh, their taxi business. So it, I think it's an interesting business model change that uh, I think we've had a lot of discussions with taxi companies about um, and that we might see some of that coming. For taxis and chauffeurs and the like, they're just automatically in this high-risk category of facility insurance as opposed to like me and you and Dave Williams. Our driver's abstract falls into the actuarial tables. Now, of course, I'm pulled in with Atlantic Canada, so my premium went up even though I didn't have any infractions, tickets or accidents. But for the cabbies, they're straight up into this high-risk pool regardless of their driver's abstract, regardless of their track record. So that's where they say it's unfair. And of course, the insurance premiums are extraordinary. So just to cut to the chase, the Uber drivers, if and when they come to town, they will not automatically be in this actuarial pool. They'll be able to be insured outside of facility insurance. So taxis also are able to be insured outside of facility. Um, I believe most are in facility. And it comes down to, I guess, if you're able to get a price on the private market, then that's great. You can go ahead. And there's nothing stopping taxis from doing that. Um, and so I think the same thing would be would be in place for ride-sharing. So if ride-sharing companies are able to get a policy on the, on the private market, then they can go ahead and for sure, facility is there for anyone who's unable to get insurance. Yeah, and no, basically for the industry, the rule of thumb, unwritten or unspoken or otherwise, is no regular insurance for high-risk categories like cabbies or chauffeurs or whatever the case may be. Uh, let's talk about worker protections because that's something that's been a concern of Uber drivers for a long, long time. The uh, type of protection is not afforded to them. So what will be the landscape here? Uh, so um, my colleague, Minister Davis, uh, in charge of labor, has spoken about this. So, um, you know, a rideshare driver would be an independent contractor. Uh, and that is a discussion that those ministers uh, are having across Canada in terms of what that framework framework looks like. Um, I guess day one, it would be the same as in other provinces where uh, a rideshare driver is an independent contractor. Okay, there's still a lot to understand there because we have seen a drop-off in cab, traditional cab company activity when Uber comes to town, of course, with a very small pool here. And we know that for the cab companies and expenses, whether it be insurance or fuel or otherwise, there's fewer cars on the road. They've tried to modernize with uh, apps on their phone and the like too, but there has been an implication. What's your level of worry about traditional cab companies maybe being impacted as much as 30%? Because that's some of the numbers we see in parts of Ontario, for instance. Um, I think we can cert- we have enough business here for taxis and ride sharing. I-, I truly believe that. I think there's a lot of people who don't go out um, based on maybe a-, a correct or incorrect perception they have of how easy it might be to get home at the end of the night uh, or the end of the day or wherever they're going. Um, so I think the overall demand of paying for a ride is going to, you know, that pool of business is going to increase. Uh, but I also think it's an opportunity for some taxi companies who might want to change the business model. You know, they won't have to uh, buy by different sets of municipal bylaws, you know, across municipalities. Um, one set of bylaws, you know, they already have cars. You know, there's there's a, a lot of benefits and values that um, I think some of the existing cab companies might um, find interesting in this different type of model. It might be okay for the drivers to say, well, maybe I'll just be an Uber driver versus working from one of the uh, obvious cab companies that are in play here. Okay, let's move off to the whole concept of people being able to change their name after they've been convicted of a sexual assault, what have you. It's an obvious attempt to hide their criminal background. Now, some of that can be afforded to uh, dealt with with Claire's Law and what have you, but where are we on that front? I don't think we're only one of a couple of provinces that allow people to change their name after such conviction. Well, actually, that's uh, one of the reasons why I called. So uh, Bill 50, um, changing the Change of Name Act, 
uh, will prohibit individuals uh, who are convicted of one of 16 uh, sexual offenses in the criminal code from changing their name. Um, so if you, uh, when you apply to change your name, and this does not apply to marriage or divorce, so, but if, if any other instance, if you change your name, and it will not apply to those under 16, um, you essentially will need a criminal record check to, to and provide that with your change of name application. Uh, and then we will not allow anyone who's been convicted of one of those uh, 16 um, sex offenses. Uh, I think it's also to under, important to understand, though, that we do have a, dis a path for discretion. Um, you know, I recognize that there could be, and our, I guess our government recognizes that there could be some situation that I can't foresee or fathom at the moment where someone might need to change their name and that might be in the public's best interest. Um, so we do have uh, the ability to for someone who is convicted of one of these sex offenses to apply. Um, I can't foresee what that might be right now, but uh, so as a rule, um, if you've been convicted of a sex offense, you will not be able to change your name. Is this law in place everywhere else in the country? Uh, so I believe there's three provinces right now um, that do not allow sex offenders to change their name. Uh, and so we will be joining those three provinces. What happens if someone gets convicted of a sexual assault here, goes to a province where this is not in place, applies through their provincial government? Maybe, you know, people are, are transient and they move to work, for instance. So, so what happens or what precludes someone from doing exactly that? I don't know which provinces are on the books with these types of laws, but how does provincial legislation address that but, uh, possibility? Uh, so it's kind of a mixed web in around the country, but if you're changing your name in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, there are rules and documentation uh, you have to provide. Um, so you, I think you have to be a resident of Newfoundland and Labrador to change your name in Newfoundland, legally change your name in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, and we pro you know, require that documentation. And then you'll, at that point, you'll be required to provide um, a criminal record check. And so um, some provinces require fingerprinting as well. Uh, based on our um, legal analysis and working with law enforcement, uh, we will not require you know, vital statistics will not require fingerprints as part of the change of name process. Um, but it is a bit different in each province, and I think each um, the rule the, the rules uh, within each province that govern who can change their name uh, would be unique in each province. Because this is, it was really quite dastardly for someone to be able to deflect and to run away from their criminal past simply by changing their name. And of course, even if you change your name, and with Claire's Law coming forward, which is a very helpful tool, if this wasn't also happening at the same time, then Claire's Law might not be as effective as it has to be because people just change their name. Absolutely. Um, I mean, personally, I think... This is very helpful for vulnerable individuals. Um, now, I, I do want to reassure people, though, that you can't change your name and evade the law. You know, law enforcement know all of your names. So even if in the past someone had changed their name, um, they can't escape their criminal record from law enforcement. But it obviously it does give you... Um, that kind of protection, or, or that's probably the wrong word, but for the, the average person. So I, I do think that um, stopping sex offenders from changing their name does increase public safety for vulnerable people. There's a couple more I want to get to. Do you have time to uh, be put on hold during the news? Because I want to talk about accessibility for sure. And then there's a couple of things that have been uh, floated around about attention to school bus safety that we, we should discuss as well. I'm happy to stay on. Thank you. Okay, let's do exactly that. Put the minister on hold, take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll finish our conversation with Minister Studley. Then Laura's in the queue, wants to talk about the Statute of Limitations Act that we have been discussing based on Jack Whalen's case. Now, he's not the only one, but there's only two problems in the country that have a difference between sexual and physical abuse and the Statute of Limitations, and we're one of those problems. Don't go away. 
Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin our conversation on line number five with the Minister of Digital Government and Service NL. That's Sarah Studley. Minister Studley, you're back on the air. Thanks, Patty. Let's go right to building accessibility. You know, so inside of Bill 52, and we talk about audits after the fact as opposed to attention during construction sometimes. And even when renovations are made, sometimes it's an after-the-fact audit where we figure out whether or not something is accessible. So where are we on that front? And should we not start with simply advocates in the field, experts in universal design? Because if you get it right at the outset, you get it right for long term. Absolutely. So um, over the last two years, we've been going through kind of a consultation process um, where we did, you know, virtual sessions during COVID, uh, which have culminated into Bill 52. Uh, and so the, and we also have the Building Accessibility Advisory Board that gave us recommendations kind of as a starting point. Um, and so I, I do want to thank them for all of their work and thank all the disability advocates that, we, you know, we've heard from. Um, so I guess the biggest pain point that we heard is that uh, currently there's this exemption if around buildings built before 1981 uh, around the value of, of the property and the work being done. Um, and if, if the value was less than half half the property value, um, the value of construction or, or uh, remodel, then they didn't have to make anything accessible. Um, so that is the biggest change that we're making now with the building accessibility changes. Uh, that ex- that year exemption will no longer be in place. Um, so any building undergoing uh, renovation and construction. Um, if you are, if the class of use changes, if you're, uh, you know, moving a wall or, or making major renovations, the area in which you're renovating will have to meet the the, the national building code. Um, so currently, we don't have kind of a provincial code. We have these building accessibility rules, um, and with this change, we're now adopting the national building code, um, which has accessibility built in, and it also gives our team a bit of flexibility flexibility in terms of working with building designers and building owners to make things. As as accessible as possible. Um, so we're hoping that this will significantly improve accessibility for any building undergoing change or renovation. Um, there are also a few other changes. Um, any new building or change of building with a capacity of 300 people um, will require a full-service family washroom. So that was a big uh, change that advocates have been asking for. Um, and we clarified the rules around home-based businesses, um, and we've uh, significantly increased the fines for non-compliance uh, with the Building Accessibility Act. Um, so we're very pleased to um, to bring those forward. Um, I think we've had criticism that we haven't gone far enough, and I, I you know, it's, it's a balance. Um, I certainly take that point, but uh, I'm very confident that um, the changes we put forward will significantly increase uh, building accessibility for uh, people who need it. Can you clarify on the home-based business exactly what the issue is here? Will that also be subjected to the national code? Um, so today with home-based business um, businesses, the rules uh, that have been in practice, my understanding, uh, they just weren't in in the legislation so there's no pragmatic change for anyone it's just we're now putting in the legislation what our practice had been so things like um if there if there's no entrance between uh, the 
the living part of the home and the business part of the home. Um, you'd have to make things successful if there's, you know, for a firewall in between. Um, so there's there's rules around home-based businesses now, and our intention is that that is much clearer. But in practice, there should be no change from the practice today. Okay, I'm going to read something directly from an, uh, a, a disability or an accessibility advocate. Okay, let's see here. In reference to Bill 52, the minister, you, spoke about how if a small business moved a wall, they would have to make the building accessible. But if a multi-story building renovated a floor and made it accessible for a client there, there is no requirement for the business owner to make the building or pathway to get there accessible, like accessible parking, accessible front door, elevator, etc. Your reaction? Um, so that's a fair comment. And we look across the country. And so in, in terms of like if, if we have a three-story building and if you're making a change to the third floor, um, what we're proposing and what exists today is that you're right. You wouldn't have to make the whole thing accessible, just the section you're changing. Um, and that's common across the country. So there's no jurisdiction that would require um, a, bu- a business to make everything accessible. Um, and I think that's a fair point that I'll certainly take away. Um, but I know that the advocates have been calling for these changes. And, uh, you know, I guess we've spent two years working on this. And, I, you know, I think it's probably a bit too long. Uh, but I'm, I'm really happy to bring these forward today. There's always room for improvement. And uh, I think that's certainly something that we'll take away and consider. But that's not something that exists in any other province today. Okay. School bus safety. So there was an assertion on the floor of the House of Assembly that we didn't have the required full capacity of staff for school bus inspections. I believe yeah. the total staffing position number is 33 with only three vacancies. So I think you took exception to and I, I believe it was Mr. O'Driscoll who made yeah. the comments on the floor. So what is the actual, what's happening on the ground with school bus safety and the full complement of inspectors? So school bus safety is, one. I, I would say, arguably the most important area of responsibility within digital government service NL. Um, and so it is the single most important thing that our highway enforcement officers do, and I want to thank them for, for doing that. Um, and a few weeks ago, I was... I was very pleased to join two of our highway enforcement officers to do a school bus inspection to get a feel for it myself. Um, And so I'm very confident in the process. So what happens is um, twice each year, every bus contractor or owner has to get an inspection from an official inspection station and they have to send to motor registration. In addition to that, beginning in August, our highway enforcement officers do additional inspections on all buses. So we do 100% in the fall of the year. And then in the spring of the year, we do a minimum another 30%. And we we try to bring it up higher than that. So all school buses, 100% of school buses have three full inspections each year. Um, One of those are done by our highway enforcement officer. uh, And then we also do, you know, kind of 30 to 50% again. Um, And participating in one of those inspections you know i was there for 45 minutes inspecting one bus it was incredibly thorough um even you know being on the bus for the brake test uh you know where the bus driver has to stop uh within a certain um number of a certain kilometer range using a certain torque to make sure that you know if the brake lines are going to snap they're going to snap during a school bus inspection and not when they're stopping with children on the bus um so i i do want to thank our highway enforcement officers but i have a, a very high uh, degree of confidence in how we regulate school bus safety at the moment. So with the school buses, remind me what is the age of a bus that someone's allowed to bring in and the number of kilometers allowed to be on the bus if they bring it in from elsewhere to operate in the province? 
Um, I don't have that information in front of me. Uh, I, I know that we did uh, change the number of years during COVID. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I know that our team, you know, are, are on all the inspections. You know, they tell, they told me about what a dream it is to do an inspection on a brand new bus. And I, I do want to thank all the bus contractors uh, because they've been buying in new, new buses left, right and center, especially with our government's uh, announcement of uh, the 1.6 rules. So uh, next fall, uh, by by next fall, 100% of children will be picked up um, in school buses. Uh, so that's a significant policy change. And I want to thank all the, the contractors and the school bus owners uh, for helping us get there. And, uh, you know, they're buying new buses, which obviously helps everyone's safety as well. People might think it's a bit of a race to the bottom in the school bus world because bidding on t- contracts, if the lowest bid always wins, we might also be putting children on the oldest heavy kilometer buses that are on the road. So is there any wiggle room inside that procurement uh, and RFPs? Because if it's simply the lowest bid it's really not necessarily the best bid uh so i mean when i have been speaking with school bus owners that's not a concern of theirs you know we are using all the buses available and they are buying new buses and we are using the new buses um and so i mean if that's a concern of any of the contractors i'm happy to chat with them but that has not been raised you know i've had many discussions with school bus owners um and they are very pleased with our change and they are investing in new buses so i I do want to thank them um and i do have a high degree of confidence over our school bus uh, safety processes here there was a real tragic incident there a couple of years ago which saw the cancellation of the school bus contract for Gladney's. But at the exact same time, we started to use Gladney's drivers and their buses. So what's the status of that contract? So that would be a Department of Education um, decision, and I wasn't you know, in, involved in that decision. Uh, I guess we focus on the inspection of the buses, not necessarily the contracts with the departments. Um, so I guess from a, you know, and, and we deal with the driver's licensing as well. So uh, I guess from our perspective, we want to make sure the drivers have appropriate license, they have appropriate insurance, and the buses are mechanically sound. Um, so, and, and I have a high degree of confidence in that process. This might be a question better suited to the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan, but inside of Clare's Law, do you happen to know that if someone is uh, undergoing a gender transition and wants a new name, well, how does the law apply to those individuals? Do you happen to know? Um, so I'm not, I'm not aware of, a ch- of, of how... I, I don't think it would, be, would apply. So, for example, if you change your name... Um, you get a criminal record check at the point of changing your name and you submit that to, to the Registrar of Budget Statistics and then you can or cannot change your name. And so, the ju- I mean, regardless of whether or not you have a sex offense, um, law enforcement track and know all of your names. So I don't really think that would be, um, that would, I don't, regardless of what your name is and your past names, I don't think that would impact the ability of law of law enforcement to give a risk rating to a, a someone who's concerned in terms of the Claire, Claire's law process. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. As the Minister of Digital Government and Service and Health, Sarah Studley. Before we get to the break, let's go to line number six. Good morning, Don. You're on the air. Yeah, Patty, how are you today? Excellent, thank you. How are you doing? Not the bad, boy. Patty, my wife was a faithful uh, listener to you. Joan, I don't know if you remember from years ago, but uh, the hassle in the, in the central area about the uh, priests and whatever. Okay. But anyway, uh, what I'm looking for, uh, Patty, I, I listen to you occasionally, but I'm uh, I'm trying to get some information about uh, heat pumps and uh, the split uh, units and the uh, people I'm dealing with. Uh, I I get in different versions of what's, uh, you know, what's out there and, you know, what's best for you. And, 
but uh, I, was, I was listening to you a couple of weeks ago, and there was a couple of customers on, and they were saying, you were saying, that, here's a number I can give you, and, and you can call it, and you get all the information and the details uh, off it. So I'm, I'm looking for that phone number if you have it handy. Sure, I, I can find it pretty quickly. The... Uh the issue there is it's confusing. There is a lot of different pots of money, both provincially and federally, so fair ball. And I yep. have a, I have my hands full trying to keep it all straight. Here's what I suggest to everybody yep. is the very best way to get through what program is best for you, what mini split or heat pump might be best for you, is to talk directly to the companies that are doing the work because they will walk you through at no charge all of the different grants or subsidies out there, all the differences between the mini splits and the central heat pumps. So I'm going to give you a company name. Uh, okay. Uh, sure. And I mean, this is so, look, I hate to pick, you know, favorites here or what have you, yeah. but yeah. I'm going to give you a number and they will walk you through it. 709. 709. 727. 727. 26. Yep. 80. 80. Yeah. All right, Petty. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Don. Say hello to John for me. I will. Okay, buddy. All the best. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Laura's there in the queue to talk about the Statute of Limitations Act. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Laura. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Um, I just wanted to come on here today to give my uh, my say as to what was going on um, in the assembly this, uh, in the last few weeks, and uh, I am outraged. You know. Uh, I feel that the government owns owes him something. You're talking about Jack Whalen? Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, Jack Whalen. Yeah, and um when it comes to him having to go around with pistol still at his age, it's outrageous. They should have they should have changed them. Uh, limitations when everybody else did and here we are in a, a Canada and they're saying that it's the best place to be and here they're, the government here is not looking after the people they're looking after themselves and they're going around um, putting money out where they think that they're going to get their votes this is both that this okay, not changed Okay, so the statute of limitations issue here, and there's only a couple of provinces that operate under this type of approach. So there's no statute of limitations on cases where there's childhood sexual abuse. But the same exemptions do not apply to physical abuse. Jack Whalen would have had till his 21st birthday to come forward or up to his 29th birthday if the the abuse had been discovered throughout counseling and therapy later in life. So... They're saying that it's one thing for sexual abuse, but not for physical, mental, or emotional abuse. And that, of course, all stems back to the Hughes inquiry uh, about the victims at Mount Cashel. They put that exemption, they took that exemption, uh, put that exemption in, pardon me, for sexual abuse, but left it for every other type of abuse. And the argument there is probably pretty clear. Jack Whalen's not alone. Jack Whalen is one of, I don't know, dozens, hundreds, thousands that may indeed be due compensation. And because of those statute of limitations, that's why the government is probably worried about the numbers and the amount of money that might flow. Yeah, it's all about the money. It feels it's like it. It's all about the money. Yes, it is. Uh, absolutely. Like, how, uh, what, what is, what it is, what is it, and why this is not done is beyond me. 
Well, it should be done. I mean, they're not the same types of abuse, but the lifelong trauma can be very, very similar, regardless if you were sexually or physically abused as a child. So I understand your concern. This this is obviously that this is uh, affecting this man. If he's going around with a, a, a cell on his truck. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't get this. You know, I, I really don't. If this don't get changed, somebody is going to get hurt. Well, absolutely. You know, somebody is going to come down on them real big. It's been challenging you know, court. It, well, you know, yeah, they got it in court, certain things. But in the meantime, if they changed it, they wouldn't have to to spend the money uh, that they're spending to haul this in court. Like, really. Spending, our, spending the money that um, is used for that kind of situation is outrageous. It should not be put through the courts. It should have been put through when everything else went through. Newfoundlanders is always the last to get anything. I just don't get it. You know, I moved out of Newfoundland for a better life. I shouldn't have had to do that. I appreciate the concerns. I think most people think that those uh, exemptions should not be different between sexual and physical abuse. Uh, certainly, that's where I come down on it. We've talked about it many times. Mr. Whalen oh spent 730 days in solitary confinement as a child. An adult wouldn't be able to do that. Well, even you know? in the prison system now, I mean, people refer to solitary as cruel and unusual, right? And it yes. absolutely is. Now, it's a tool for correctional officers to try to keep, you know, behaviors in check amongst the incarcerated population. But, you know, it's one thing to try to keep things under control, quite another for people to be traumatized for life. There was an example of a fellow indigenous man. He was incarcerated in Manitoba. I'm pretty sure the story came from. He spent oh, yeah. years in uh, solitary confinement. And when he finally got out and got released, he didn't even know how to speak anymore. He had so, such limited human interaction, the poor man didn't even know how to talk. I mean, that's just unbelievable when you think about it. Laura, I appreciate the time and the conversation well, I, this morning. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number six. Daryl, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi. Uh, first time caller, and just call up on the West Coast. Uh, just got a quick question for you. They're... Um, Last week, sometime that there, I was ta- or uh, I overheard it on the radio that Linda Swain was uh, talking to this person that they're about uh, the new song that's coming out by the Beatles. Yep. And uh, does this person like? Okay, I heard him. I heard him briefly in that. Era, but is he a Beatles like collector himself, or do we know someone that collects Beatles? Like I, I have a large number of the Beatles like records, books, and posters, and that. There, I'm just wondering. Can you point me into some direction of who would be interested in doing this kind of stuff or, or like, buying it or, or, you know? Well, I can't speak for anyone's willingness to buy it, but I'm pretty sure Linda was speaking with our very own Mike Campbell, who, of course, is the morning show personality on K-Rock, and I can tell you in no uncertain terms, Mike knows everything about the Beatles, and he's got an extensive collection of Beatles uh, paraphernalia, albums, records, and other 
real interesting uh, pieces that Mike has. So that's I'm pretty sure that's who Linda was speaking to, and uh, Mike is a wealth of knowledge regarding the band. So you can simply connect with uh, Mike through K-Rock. That should be easy enough. Okay, so do you have that number right in front of you there now that I can just phone him and... Or what? Alex, yeah, Alex what's their their phone number is pretty fundamental. What is it? Seven five four rock or something? Uh, let me see. I, I'll get it for you. No problem. All right, K Rock, K Rock ninety seven point five. Uh, 7.5 here we go and a contact number four is coming up oh, interesting website uh, da, 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 da. features all right so the number to call easy one so it's 738 rock 738 rock yep okay and what's his name again you said Mike Mike Campbell M- Mike Campbell okay that's it all right. Thank you kindly, Patty. You're welcome, Daryl. Take care. All right. All, All right. right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, I suppose I should ask him if you like the tune. It's called Now and Then. It was originally recorded by Lennon back in 1970. They mopped it up or cleaned it up, pardon me, with artificial intelligence. It's actually all right. Uh, let's go to line number three. Good morning, Robert Lundrigan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Top shelf. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good. Patty, um, just wanted to let people know that uh, recently I've... Um, I've written a book and it's been published by Flanker um, just back in mid-September called Love and War, the true story of William and Edith Lundrigan. Basically, it's a biography written by me of my parents. My mother was a, a war bride, my father a World War II veteran. And um, on Wednesday evening, this Wednesday, November the 8th at 7 p.m., I've been invited to uh, to attend an event at the rooms and it's the guest speaker on that particular topic to talk about the book and um, what's in it, how it was written, that sort of thing. So I just wanted to let the public know that uh, that will be occurring. Obviously, the rooms uh, uh, feel it's something that they have an interest in. What branch of the Armed Forces was your dad in? He was in the British Navy. He's in the British Navy. So uh, yeah. wet or whistle a little bit about what the presentation would entail or some of the personal stories from your book. Well, well, there are, there are so many stories, but basically um, when, I was, when I was a young boy, when I was about nine uh, in 1963, I'll give my age, um, my father stopped working. And, um, I, you know, I struggled for many, many years as a young boy and as a young adult with trying to understand why the other boys and girls' dads worked and, and mine didn't. And it took me almost a lifetime, Patty, to figure out that though um, terms like post-traumatic stress disorder and that sort of thing didn't really apply, or at least they weren't defined back in those times, that many war veterans suffered in many ways that, that few of us will ever understand. And so over the course of the years, my mother and father wrote uh, a lot. Uh, I was fortunate in that way. They wrote many notes and and um, stories and so on. They were great storytellers anyway. So, um, you know, I was able to put together with the help of my siblings uh, many of these stories. You know, my father left here at the age of uh, of eighteen, went overseas. He was there less than less than a year when, um, on November the third, the ship was uh, torpedoed. He was in the water, and uh, you know he tells the story how he, he, you know, at that moment when he went into the water, he couldn't swim. He went into the water and said, "Oh my God, how did I get here?" 
and and so then then the story goes on to reflect on his life. It also reflects on how my mother grew up in England, you know, from a, a working class family by Newfoundland standards at that time, reasonably well to do. Um, and she, you know, she had music lessons, went to school, finished secondary school, and so on. And she went on to work. Uh, in fact, was required to work in an essential food service for the duration of the war. Went through numerous bombings and so on through the Blitz. Now, these are the stories of my parents. They're not probably unlike the stories of many thousands. So, in that regard, um, you know, this story is somewhat universal in scope because the feedback I'm getting is that um, many people would say to me, I I really didn't realize what men and women went through back in in that time. And also, I I reflect back a lot on the times when they came across the Atlantic to live here in Newfoundland. How, for instance, my mother used to flush toilets, running water and so on, Uh, first met my mother-in-law, went into the house and said to my father, uh, Bill, she was calling Bill, Bill, um, where's the toilet? And my father says, well, Edie, there's no toilet in the house. And my mother was taken aback and said, well, well, where's the toilet? And he took the lantern and, and said, well, come with me. They went outside and, of course, went to and found an outhouse that, that, that they had been using in those days. Not unlike, you know, hundreds of communities in the province. But so, you know, my mother adjusted to all of those things. And she, she credits the people of Upper Island Cove, the people, um, her family or my father's family and so on. So there are many, many, many dozens of stories. There are very sad stories in there. And there are stories that, that will make you laugh. But at the end of the day... On the picture of the book, if you can if you can picture this, there's a wedding picture of my parents, and in the background overhead, there are still there are warplanes flying, and there's a dark cloud sort of hanging over my parents, and that's sort of symbolic, really, of the fact that though the war officially in Europe ended on May the eighth, nineteen forty-five, for many veterans and many people who now served in a military, those conflicts, those uh, many traumatic events don't necessarily go away when someone declares that the war is over. So, so that's just a, a snippet. I mean, I can go on for a long time, but <laughs> no, doubt sure. you can, Robert. <laughs> you know, I appreciate the uh, the time this morning. Give the folks the details about your presentation coming up on Wednesday. Yeah, so it, it, uh, it's a presentation that will take place at the theater at the rooms. I understand it's free for those who are members of the rooms, and otherwise it's a $12 admission fee. <clears throat> Excuse me. It starts at the doors open at 6.45. It starts at 7 p.m. and runs until 8.30. And again, it will be a, uh, it will be a discussion of uh, what, I guess, caused or inspired me to write the book, how I went about writing the book, and what is in the book, and then a question period at the end. I appreciate the time. Good luck with the event, Robert. Thanks for this. Thank you, Barry. You're welcome. very much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, just uh, take a break. Uh, When we come back, we'll talk about ableism. Where? Centerville, Wareham, Trinity. Andrew wants to talk about the Whitburn Clinic. And then, of course, yesterday was Guy Fawkes Night, you know, the old gunpowder plot. We'll talk about that or whatever's on your mind coming up after this.
Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven. Andrew, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you today? Doing fine. How about you? I'm good, but I wish I could say the same for our clinic. We find ourselves um, almost now in the new year there, year on, and I see very, very little change on our situation except uh, the implementation of um, virtual care, which you know was in the works long before the clinic closed. And um, it, it, you know, we started uh, this this committee consisting of rep- representatives from all the communities that Whitburn serves. And uh, first, I was, you know, I was optimistic about it, but cautiously optimistic, because it seemed like, you know, some some movement was happening. We were having meetings regularly, regularly, and uh, they were talking about, uh, you know, getting the recruiters Eastern or. Uh, NL Health has hired to, um, you know, recruit doctors to work with us. And I must say the last four months, there hasn't been a bit of movement. And, in fact, I sent an email to NL Health about a month ago asking for a meeting. No response. No response at all. So this, this confirms my, you know, my gut feeling. Uh, when this committee was set up, that this is probably just a stall tactic, and that's all it was, to divert, you know, and keep us all quiet on the the we have in our clinic. Still closed, remember? Yeah, the connection's the connection's terrible, Andrew. So just to make sure I know what we're talking about here, the fact that the Whitburn, the New Hook Center, has been moved to an urgent care clinic versus a full-on emergency care clinic, your question is what is that? If, if this is permanent? Well, we we had we were supposed to have meetings regularly with NL Health about you know status updates, and they had recruiters hired that were supposed to you know work with us in getting doctors. And, uh, you know, this is just all fell by the wayside um, over the last three or four months. And um, we, we just can't get any, any answers at all. And it confirms my initial suspicion that this was just a stall tactic uh, to keep us all quiet so we wouldn't be, you know, complaining and, and protesting and everything else. Because we're no further ahead now, really, than we were, you know, a year ago. Well, you know, not for me to say that I know what's going to happen to your clinic, but it's hard to envision a time where what is now an urgent care clinic is going to return to full-on emergency room uh, offerings. So what were, we, what were we told from the onset? Because urgent care is going to be, you know, the new moniker for some of the clinics that used to be emergency rooms. So what was uh, the community told from the beginning? Is that this was temporary while they tried to staff and put the recruitment efforts in, or what exactly was the, the landscape? Well, that's exactly what we're told, but there's no effort being made to recruit, not that I could see. I mean, we had the committee set up. We had two very capable people um, who who volunteered. One was retired, and the other one is very, you know, very good at this type of thing as well, uh, said they would, you know, work with the recruiters to do up a profile. They met with them once, 
and uh, they were supposed to send some information. Never heard a thing after. You know, never heard a thing after. So, to me, um, they're really not trying to to recruit, you know, the way they should. And, I mean, needless to say, Whitburn, I know there's there's closures all over the province. I know that. But no clinic or hospital has suffered the same amount of reduction in services as Whitburn has. And, uh, I mean, people are just not getting the health care they need. I know, I know, because I'm hearing it all the time. There's, I know people who can't get doctors. I know people who can't get in urgent care when they go up because it's full for the day. And the thing is, even the numbers are going to be deceiving because, boy, two, if, if, you, if they had a slow morning, then a, a rush of people come in in the afternoon. They only can t- take so many patients. So it might say 16 patients that day, whereas they, you know, their, their maximum is 20. But the 16 is not saying that you know, 10 were turned away that day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So even no, even the numbers are kind of working against us. But um, I mean, prior to COVID, that was the busiest facility out of the three in this immediate area. The number I've got the numbers that shows it. It was a far, far busier facility than Placentia or Winterton or uh, Old Perlkin. I was going to say, yeah, Winterton, yeah, Old Perlkin. Fair enough. Yeah. So, uh, like, I, I, I think maybe it's time for. Uh, from this area to start speaking up a little bit more uh, because the public probably don't know this, but that committee that was set up has done absolutely nothing. And uh, maybe a, a little bit of that might be our fault for not pushing a little bit more. But I, like I say, I sent an email to uh, Newfoundland Health, Newfoundland Labrador Health a month ago, never got a response about even having, having a meeting to see where we stand on it. You know, and that's not good enough. So, who's on the committee? There's um, a repres- at least one representative from each each of the twenty odd communities surrounding Whitburn. Okay. Yeah, and like I say, we uh, we we try to get a meeting, can't get a meeting. So, Eastern Health or uh, not Eastern Health, NL Health. If you're listening, get your gas together, get a meeting, so we can see what's going on here. Yeah, and again, no crystal ball available in this studio, but when things move from emergency to emer- to urgent care, hmm, when things are moving very quickly to a further expansion and reliance on virtual care, and I read some of the numbers about what virtual care meant in Ontario in the early days of the pandemic and the hope to divert people from mercy rooms, it didn't really work as much as they hoped it would. So there's lots of big conversations on that front. Uh, final thoughts go to you, Andrew, before we say goodbye. And I mean, yes, we know we know we're in a in a um, a situation here where we're you know a lot closer to St. John's and other facilities. But the problem is, if you can't get in any of those other facilities, it don't matter if you're uh, five hundred miles away or or one mile away. Like it's not going to make any difference to you. Is the is the capacity these facilities can take uh, that that's the bottom line, you know. Yeah, it's not that you won't be seen, is that you might have to wait an extraordinary amount of time to be seen. One of my buddies got six stitches after waiting for 10 hours not long ago. Yeah, I know of of an elderly woman with stroke-like symptoms that had to stand up in the the porch of a a hospital for 12 hours to get seen to. Patty, that's not okay. That's not okay, you know. 
I appreciate the time, Andrew. We'll follow up too to see if there's any moving, uh, any movement from the department about this committee and the possibility of a meeting. And I appreciate the call. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sandra Pretty. Uh, let's take a break. Terry, stay right there to talk about what's happening out on Centerville, Wareham, Trinity. Joe wants to talk about Guy Foxley, which, of course, was yesterday, and then CPP. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number eight. Joe, you're on the air. Oh, okay, great. Thanks. Um, you were talking last week about uh, uh, Guy Foxley, and I can't remember where it was that was having the big celebration. Um, and historically, of course, uh, a guy who became re- a representative of any Catholic, and in the 1800s, he became a representative of the Pope. So I had two questions for you. You seem to be in favor of this event. Pardon me? Um, are, you, uh, are you in favor of uh, burning people in effigy, which represents an intent on the part of the community to actually kill the person? When did I say and anything like that? Well, no, but that's what Guy Fox is. So, and you seemed in favor of the event. No, I, I mentioned that November the fifth is Guy Fox night. It's a gunpowder treason plot, or gunpowder plot, or the Jesuit trees, and whatever people refer to. No comment on uh, whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing, and it's no, but you know. You were talking to somebody whose community is setting up a celebration, and you seemed to imply that that would be a fun thing to do. I was talking to someone about Guy Fox night celebrations. Yeah, some community. I can't remember which community it was. So and it was a woman, a woman, and she was talking about, oh, we're going to have, we'll provide the hot dogs, and you just have to provide the sticks, and uh, and we're teaching the children how to make uh, guy foxes in the schools. Are you sure that was me talking to someone about burning people in effigy? I don't know. I don't recall that. I'm happy to own no, up to it if I did, but I don't, I don't recall that. Burning Pardon? Yeah, well, it was, if it wasn't you, did someone take your place last Friday? Uh, no, I was on the show last Friday. Dave, did we have a guy, a guy Fox call on Friday? Dave's looking at the call list right now. Because I don't recall anyone applauding anyone burning people in effigy, whether it be on Guy Fox night or any other night. I mean, well, that's ba- what Guy Fox night is. Well, it and, doesn't have uh, to be that way. People can just have a bonfire. You don't have to have the the course of action as you describe. A bonfire has long been probably the most notable uh, gathering. It's simply a fire, not, no more, no less. Well, well I don't know. In the 1800s, it was very clearly they were burning guys of, uh, of, of popes and, and, as you say, Jesuits. Yeah, but that's 1850s. This is 2023. Yeah, but it's the same event. That's what it celebrates. That's what it commemorates. So, Joe, do you actually have a problem if people uh, get together, have a bonfire on the 5th of November? Well, if they're making guys and bring them, I'm just wondering if uh, they're in favor of, 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 of picking people to kill. Because that's historically what it was. Now, as you say, it may have changed. And the, Dave just are checked. They making, they're making guys in the schools, she said, and teaching them about them. So, yeah, it wasn't on um, this show. Dave just checked the call log, and I don't remember that conversation at all because I didn't have it. So the gunpowder... Oh, I'm sorry. I only listen to your show in the car because it's the best show ever. I appreciate you tuning in, but honestly, like whatever call that I ha- ever have on this program, I will live up and own everything I say. But I don't recall anything about that, period. And Dave oh. just checked the list and said that did not happen on this program on Friday. So, that, Okay, you know, maybe it was on Thursday then. That's, uh, 
when I, well, no, Friday and Thursday I drive. I listen to the radio when I'm driving. Because I also wanted to mention, because you mentioned Jesuit plot, that if anyone, I, I told the people in Cape Royal because they were having a bonfire, because, um, of course, it is free of all that historical stuff. I told them, that since I'm a Jesuit priest, I said, uh, tell them if anyone's looking for a Jesuit priest, tell them I'm in town on Monday, on Sunday. So, yeah, I've only ever I, been I to say. I've only ever been to a Guy Fox night when it was just people burning tires or just having bonfires. No historical uh, presentations, no context offered because some of that is we're kind of talking about something pretty antiquated here too, right? The gunpowder mm-hmm. plot was in 1605. You know, mm-hmm. and it's only referenced to Guy Fox because he was the fellow that was caught uh, trying to watch over the 36 barrels of gunpowder, as opposed to the leader, Robert Catsby, who actually died in a gunfight mm-hmm. with authorities. Fox and I think seven or eight others, they were found guilty of this treasonous plot, uh, all hung, drawn, and quartered. So, and he was caught on the evening of November 4th, the early hours of November 5th. So that's all I've ever said about Guy Fox. And I guess for clarity or for confirmation, I don't think think burning people in effigy is something that I would celebrate with my children, regardless if there's free hot dogs. I know. And, um, and of course, it is ancient. But there are lots of ancient things that, you know, like people, do people, uh, are, is everybody in favor of Columbus Day in the United States when he came to the Americas in the 1400s? Uh, a lot of people say, well, we, should, we shouldn't, the Americans shouldn't celebrate Columbus Day because of what it represents. So sometimes there are historical things we do that uh, that we do without no understanding what the, what the origin was, and when we find out what the origin was. Anyway, no, I'm, I'm obviously joking. No. I have never felt in any fear in Newfoundland as a Jesuit priest. Fair enough, and uh, I, I grew up across the street from the Jesuit priest and the rectory. Uh, so very quickly, I was really at a loss as to what conversation you had heard, but I, I just got this note from the newsroom. So on Friday evening or whatever, on Halloween, the My Show did not replay in the evening. It was Dale Jarvis coming on talking about things like Guy Fox Night and Halloween and stuff. So it wasn't with me. That's why I don't recall it, because it wasn't me. Oh, okay. And, it's, and that's, I listened to it in the evening, too. And uh, I had to drive to town from Cape Royal in the evening after Halloween was over. So that's probably what I, what I heard. Okay. Yeah, and there's a reason why I didn't remember, because I... Really had no idea what we were talking sentence. about. Okay, but fair uh, enough. Can I put in one one last, just one sentence? It's a solution for um, daylight saving time. Okay, we like daylight saving time in the fall. We don't like it in the spring. So in the spring, instead of moving the clock forward an hour, we should move it back an hour, like the fall. Then we'll like it twice. <laughs> I think we just use standard uh, standard time and just be done with it. Because, I mean, the origins of daylight saving goes back to 1895. It's some guy who wanted more daylight to find and inspect insects. So, But, but just, just think, if we had daylight, if we had uh, rever- what I call reverse daylight saving time, sending it back an hour twice a year, we'll have two extra hours of productivity per year. Well, that's the argument people make, isn't it? It interrupts sleep patterns, your circadian rhythm. It has real proven documentation regarding motor vehicle accidents and heart attacks and productivity. Uh, Absolutely, it's all part of it. Who lives in accordance with when the sun rises and sets anymore? We're, We're too modern for that. Well, it depends how, how, what activities you actually indulge in, right? Because darkness can indeed be a reason why that set of tennis or that baseball catch or flicking that frisbee or whatever might not happen in the dark when it would have when we're in standard Ooh, we, time, and it's still light when we get off work. We're modern people. We lit up lights. 
that has to do with my other theory about putting a dome over all of St. John's and then we oh light it up day and night. But uh, anyways. Well, I, we couldn't make the dome work at Muscrat. I don't think we're going to make it work at the capital city. <laughs> and we didn't make it work at... Uh, it sprung either. Yeah, lots of different reasons uh, regarding that particular issue. But, uh, Joe, where do you uh, practice as a Jesuit priest? What parish? I'm um, up the shore right now in Cape Royal Ferryland Renews, and um, I'm also a chaplain at Mun. How many Jesuit priests are still in the island? On the island? Oh well, there are five of us here, okay. including the famous Bill Brown, son of Judge Bill Brown. 95 years old. He's still here. Okay. Father Joe Shook, who taught at Gonzaga for a long time. And uh, John Sullivan just moved here two years ago to become the uh, pastor of our new parish because we were, of course, removed from St. Pius Tenth. Everything was sold there, so we're out at uh, St. Paul's now. Yeah, that was my parish as a child. I went to St. Pius Tenth School. And, you know, mm. the Father Fishers and Father McGee and mm-hmm. those two gentlemen in particular were the stalwarts or the staples at that church. Did you, uh, Father Mc- did you ever have Father McKenna? No. The famous Father J. Kevin Mc- J. What did they call him at Codco? J. Heavy McJesuit. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Joe, I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Nice talking to you. Take good care of yourself. All right, bye-bye. Uh, yeah, Guy Fox Sanders, I wonder why I didn't remember, because I didn't. Uh, so, now I'm being told by email that I did have this conversation, but pretty sure it wasn't me. I think it's Dale Jarvis' show, isn't it? Yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't recall it, but, you know, uh, applauding, you know, Guy Fox Night to me has only ever been an opportunity for people to have a bonfire. No one going hog wild, and whether it be celebration of the king was king was spared and the House of Lords was not rubbled like it would have been had the plot uh, unfolded. You know, those 36 big barrels of gunpowder that was found in the basement of the House of Lords. Anyway, 1605. Let's take a break. Uh, Terry, stay right there. Talk about ableism out in his community. And Daryl wants to talk about the CPP. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Terry. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? I'm doing fine this morning. Thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm having a great, relaxing Monday morning here now. Just been cuddling with my boy all morning, so it's uh, it, it's it's been pretty good. I have no complaints on my end. Lucky, glad to hear it. What's on your mind? Well, uh, I'm actually an ASD self advocate uh, as part of my volunteer work. Aside from that, I'm actually a freelance writer, and I had a food column going in the Telegram for Saltwire there for a couple of years and elsewhere. Uh, and I've also reported the news for the city of Kingston in uh, Ontario as a print media journalist. Uh, but when I moved back home, so I'm originally from uh, it's okay. I'm originally from Dover, and uh, that's small town in around Bonavista Bay. When I uh, moved home, it was because I had gotten custody of my son, uh, and both me and my son are autistic. Um, we. Uh, We've uh, actually, we were diagnosed a couple of years ago. Max was diagnosed now when he was, uh, when he was around 19 months old. Myself, I was diagnosed shortly afterwards in Ontario, um, and, and specifically what, what used to be known as Asperger's syndrome. 
And when I came home, I decided I wanted to take up the role of an ASD self-advocate specifically because there was a bit of a gulf between where we should be in regards of our attitudes towards autism and neurodivergency and neurodiversity in general and what was actually being displayed and seen and and was evident um, within within, uh, my town and the surrounding towns as well. And so my advocacy efforts had done really well uh, almost immediately. I had uh, petitioned from my local school, the school where I grew up, uh, William Mercer Academy, to replace the puzzle pieces on their murals with infinity rainbows as, of course, because... The puzzle pieces are uh, a very problematic symbol, and they're they're offensive to the vast majority of actually autistic people in this province and worldwide. Um, and to and the infinity rainbow or symbol, of course, is a symbol that we chose for ourselves, whereas the puzzle piece was kind of forced on us. Uh, and that went well. And but the main issue that I ran into were there are these street signs around. And when I first encountered these street signs, I was absolutely blown away. I, I, I was incredibly offended and hurt on a very personal level as an autistic uh, and as, as, as parents to an autistic as well, a single father to an autistic. It, these signs say autism area, and they have a puzzle piece right down at the bottom. And they're specifically, I'm told, put there to warn motorists that anyone with autism can be suddenly running into the middle of the road um and as such would be a traffic hazard you know or and of course these signs also existed in the community next to cwt which is actually new west valley and to their credit to their extreme credit it took one phone call to get those signs replaced with children at play signs and their signs actually said person with autism using person first language instead of identity first language and i know a lot of people are unfamiliar with the difference between that but basically we see autism as not as an illness there is nothing wrong with us we are meant to be autistic and it is good that we are autistic and so when we see person with autism you're using the same kind of language as you would use for a disease we say we're autistic because that is who we are as a marginalized group and as a people as opposed to someone who was supposed to be something else but something had gone wrong so i called them and they immediately to their credit took those signs down and they vowed to replace them with um children at play signs which children at play signs are safer anyway because they work at night as well as during the day and they are, have a very clear, concise meaning to watch for children running into the road. Whereas these autism area signs are loaded with many different meanings, and their meaning isn't all that concise to the general public. I myself had no idea what they even were for until I had to ask about it and learn. <laughs> so Fair enough. It, but, you know, like I do know that in some schools, for instance, some children who may be on the spectrum may indeed be prone to running from school, but it still sounds like an inappropriate type of sign and the language therein. I just want to pick up on something you said. He said uh, what we used to call Asperger's. Did the terminology change surrounding Asperger's syndrome? Absolutely. It did. To, to what? The reason... It's actually now just considered part of level one autism. So basically what's problematic about Asperger's syndrome is because Hans Asperger was, well, 
not to pull my punches here, he was a Nazi. And the reason that Asperger's syndrome came about is because he singled out a bunch of autistic kids who he thought would be trainable enough to enter German society, that they were what used to be called high-functioning, and that they deserved their own syndrome, he thought, to be separate from the rest of autism. And so he kind of lauded them and put them on a pedestal as people who could be saved. The rest of the children went to gas chambers. So... For that reason alone, the Asperger's syndrome has definitely been phased out for the most part. People don't really use it anymore. Now we just say level one autism. And the different levels are due to what support needs we have rather than any kind of functionality. Fair enough. So do you also find it problematic? And I'm not trying to put thoughts or words in your mouth. I'm just asking a question. So for mm. some businesses, for instance, they will have a, uh, a sensory overload recognition and have quiet time shopping and dim the lights and turn off the music and that kind of stuff. Do you find that to be helpful or do you think that's also judgmental? Oh, no, those are incredibly helpful. In okay, fact, good. Uh, us at the, I, I didn't know if I mentioned, I'm actually part of the board of directors with the Autism Society of Newfoundland and Labrador as uh, ASD self-advocate for Off Avalon. And that's one of the things that we are hoping to introduce is areas where autistics like myself can actually come, come in and, and chill out and unwind and relax and maybe even get over a lot of our sensory overload. I experience sensory overload myself. The problem with these signs is that they, for one, are basically advertising vulnerability to potential predators and bullies in the area by saying, hey, an autistic person or an autistic kid lives around here. It, it, you know, it, it's problematic for that reason. And of course, the people who implement those signs could be held accountable if, if anything were to happen in that regard. The, the other issue is, is that it ballparks all of autism, the entire autism spectrum in, into a traffic hazard when it the only times that autistics actually do run into the road is when we're trying to escape a sensory-heavy environment that we want to leave. And for the most part, there are sometimes other reasons, but those are the main ones. And even then, it happens for a very brief period in childhood during development, and that is it. For the entire other vast ocean of autism, it doesn't occur. We learn the rules of the road, and, and we... we go out and, and, and we enjoy basically we, we, we avail of the same society that everyone else does and so the ballpark is all as a, as a hazard and bear in mind I'm a, a father to an autistic child myself and I am autistic and I have received close to 70 emails 66 in total to be exact from people in this province as well as people passing through tourists and whatnot on their way to Lumsden Beach who have seen these signs and were absolutely outraged one 12 year old boy from Mexico his mother emailed me and was absolutely livid because her son had asked her is this what the Newfoundlanders think of autistics that that, that we're that we're all like this and, and that we're some kind of problem that we need to be warned about and she, she was livid and I understood completely about that and so I understand that there are good intentions but the good intentions are coming from a place of ignorance if they knew more then replacing these signs with children at play signs, which are actually more effective because they're actually effective at night for one, whereas the the autism area signs with puzzle pieces, hate symbols on them, you, you know, they're, they're, they don't even work at night. They don't reflect headlights. And so there are so many reasons that I can't even get into all of them right now. I've actually written 
almost all the reasons, you know, and my colleague, Rebecca Furlong, she's the uh, parent representative on ASNL. She agrees with me wholeheartedly that they need to go and that they need to be replaced with uh, children at play signs. And so uh, as, as people try to make it out like I'm just an individual person trying to start trouble who doesn't know what he's talking about because he's autistic, you know, it, it, and that, you know, if... And, and that non-autistic ASD parents are the ones that we should be listening to? Absolutely not. We should be listening to actually autistic people, that all actually autistic matters. We are the ones to ask, not our caregivers. They don't have the proper perspective to have a, they, they have a valid input, but their opinion could never be as valid as ours because we have lived experience as autistics and they don't. You know, these, these signs are hurting us. And to everyone's credit, the reason why we don't see these signs everywhere is that to everyone's credit, people have enough foresight to see that it's hurtful. And they don't put them up. What they do put up is children at play signs. So I don't understand why people feel the need to virtue signal and and defend their clout and social capital by fighting so hard to keep these signs up when they can be improved so easily. And you can retain every last bit of safety that the signs presented from the beginning and add more safety and get rid of every other negative connotation that the signs have. There's absolutely nothing to lose by doing it. I can understand other that. Than, and you know, other than a bit of social clout. Yeah, and nothing can replace uh, lived experience. I mean, I think that calls for, uh, that's the rule of thumb for... Uh, just about anything that we can think about or talk about. Uh, Terry, before I have to take the break, I'll give you the final thoughts, sir. Go right ahead. Uh, I guess the final thoughts I want to present are, listen to us. Just because we're autistic doesn't mean that we're mindless and doesn't mean that we have an opinion or a perspective that's less important or less valid than anyone else's. No one speaks for us. We speak for ourselves. And all we're asking people to do is listen and learn. Because if you do listen and learn and you are open to hearing our perspective, then most people do change and they come around. But that takes admitting that you may have been wrong and having a measure of humility to actually be open to disabled people and to hear what we have to say. I appreciate the time this morning, Terry. Thanks for this. Thank you, sir. Take good care. Bye-bye. You too. Uh, Interesting. And look, again, with lived experience or talking to people around the front lines or boots on the ground or whatever the proper or most appropriate reference is, of course, that's where you get your best understanding of what's in front of us, what the reality of life means and the, some of the barrels, uh, the hurdles or blockades. And frankly, this is not just about people on the autism spectrum or, pardon me, individuals who may indeed be on the autism spectrum. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Daryl Solaire to talk about the CPP. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Daryl, you're on the air. Well, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Okay, you? Uh, good, thanks. You got a good show going as uh, per usual. Uh, Patty, one comment about talk about the CPP, and as we know, uh, Alberta is op- hoping to opt out out of the CPP, depending on the people of the province and uh, what transpires and so forth. And the uh, federal government is sort of being reactive, but I've been thinking about it, and rather than be reactive, we got to be proactive. Because as of right now, the CPP as it stands today is $392 billion into the pot. Which is a lot of money, and no. I, he, well, pardon me. The CPP, though, so the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, which is how that's navigated, independent right. from the government of Canada, they're actually managing uh, five hundred and seventy-five billion dollars. 
575? Uh, okay, yeah. well, when I did my research, show 392, but okay, say 575. It is, yeah. Which, which is over, okay, over half a trillion dollars. And uh, so what we got to start looking at, which I think is administered by uh, the CRA and Service Canada. But uh, what we got to look at, and this is from uh, roundtable discussions, is that people are looking at, okay, for example, when you turn 60, as you know, you get CPP, and depending on when you draw it, like age 70, you get the max. So we got all this money into the pot. Won't we start doing things for the better? Like, okay, rather like have to wait to 70 to get the max, why don't you just get it when you turn 60? Because uh, a lot of people are looking at now, well, draw it at 60 because 10 years, you're 10 years older and you don't know what could happen. So uh, why don't you just get the max at 60 versus 70? Why you have to wait to 70 before you get the max to uh, start with? And two, this is why I get feedback from as well, is that why why are you being taxed on your own money? And this is a, this is feedback I've heard I've heard in roundabout uh, discussion. So, if we want to keep CPP intact, and don't want to split like you know like provinces like Alberta are looking to opt out of it because they got their reasons and and so forth, and we'll see how that plays out. And I know uh, Quebec got their own. Uh, I think they might have always had their own. I'm not sure if they're ever into the CPP and got out of it. They never were. We, no, I, yeah, you're right. Uh, they never were. So they just went on their own. But if we didn't want to further divide with the CPP, because less goes into the pot is not good for the rest of the country, let's be proactive and enhance it for the better, like uh, as I just stated. But uh, drawing earlier isn't enhancing it. Drawing it earlier deals with its actual sustainability. So every three years, yeah. Canada's chief of actuary does a review of CPP. The most recent report was uh, done back in December of last year which shows that at its current model with the current percentage of income that has to be contributed by Canadians and their employers, it's sustainable over the course of the next 75 years. It's okay, in really good shape. Go. Yeah, it is It is in uh, really good shape. But uh, also you got to look at the way things are happening into the economy. Things are changing, as you know, in general, I go on and on uh, what's happening and affordability for people and so forth. But when you look at when someone pays in CPP all their life, I, I think that's at 60, you should be able to get the max what you deserve rather than have to wait to 70 before you get the max. Because if you draw 60, you get less versus, say, 65 and 70. You should get the max at 70. You worked hard for it. You paid into it. And and uh, and it is sustainable and is worth, like I said, over half a trillion dollars. And it's, uh, you know, that's what we got to start looking at. Because if we don't start looking at things, I call it enhancement, but we got to, the more money goes back into people's pockets, the better's for the economy too. It's like domino effects. You got you got to look at the whole nine yards and how people got to try to survive this day and age and so forth. And maybe the OAS, everything should be all taken a look at for the better as well. Yeah, fair enough. But, but people are working later in life. I mean, CPP yeah. is as old as sometime in the sixties, and the age right. sixty-five that people use all the time for access to guaranteed income supplement, old age security, and yes, you can right. apply for CPP at sixty. I mean, that was a number yeah. that was plucked out when our life expectancy was almost 10 years less than it is today. So the thought wow. is that moving to uh, from 65 to 67, I mean, that's been floated about, and the federal government were actually in the middle of a transition at some point in the future. Yeah. Those ages will be 67. So that number 65, my goodness, yep. there was only a small percentage of people lived to that age at the, 
at that time. No, so it, there's reasons why people talk about the uh, age for eligibility. I don't think making it full max earlier is good for sustainability. It is a really solid performing pension fund. I mean, I don't know if there's another sovereign pension fund out there that has seen the kind of returns as the CPP has. And a sustainability window of 75 years, I think, is very reassuring to folks like myself who are yet to be old enough to draw on it. And even right. the contributions to the minimum threshold for having to contribute hasn't changed in, I don't know, certainly 30 years. So there's a lot to be said for CPP, but Alberta's motivation here is also a little bit strange. There's nothing to say that they can't opt out because that's actually part of it. The provinces can't opt out. They're talking about they've considered their contributions to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 53% of $575 million. So they think they're going to get walking away money of $334 billion themselves. And, you know, they'll go on and on and on and on and on and on about the divisive nature of the country, yet they're trying to do this. So, anyway, whatever. When you look at CPP, that was formed in 1966, actually. And uh, going back to what I'm saying, I think you should get the max at 60 versus 70. Yes, we're living longer and so forth, whatever. But then again, the more money into people's pockets, the more goes back into the economy because the way things are going now with interest rates and, and inflation and everything else, people need more money in their pockets. And, and the only way we're going to be able to conquer inflation, the way things are going now, the more money you make, that's the only way you can be able to conquer it. So the more money you get, even if someone's still working, even if they works to 90 years old, if they still get the max CPP, that money is going back into the economy, which is good for the economy and keeps try to keep businesses and everything else going. Because but uh, I watched that uh, on the national other evening that there is going to be devastating, like the restaurant industry alone. Uh, I mean, if it keeps going the way it's going, you're, you're going to have hardly a place to go if you want to go for a bite to eat. Yeah, but I mean, more money you know? is, I, mean, I thought you said something about conquering inflation, but more yeah. money has been part of the problem here. No, There's no, more no, money I, chasing I, I, fewer I, services. No, no, I'm not talking about more money as an, in print money. There's more money in the people's pockets, so they got the the power to do it. Uh, as Warren Buffett would say, the only way to beat inflation is people are going to have to make more money. And whether no. they can do it or not, that's a different uh, the kettle of fish altogether. But what I'm, what I'm saying is the more uh, availability people got financial-wise, the better it's going to be. Uh, like I'll give you an example. Now, you, uh, I don't know if you watch Here and Now. It's going to be on Here and Now tonight, uh, The Grind. And it's going to be talking about how people got to work two or three jobs to try to survive now. And, and 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 they don't have no other quality of life. It's just work, eat, and sleep, pretty much. So this is the reality of it all, you know. So uh, I think that they're all different CPP, things, though. There's all different things. Yes, there's all different aspects and different scenarios. Yes, I totally agree. But I think that CPP, if we don't want to split in this country like what's happening in Alberta, like you say, yes, they got their own thinking and their ideal. Uh, outlook on it, and we'll see how that all plays out. But if we want, we the more people are involved with it, like the rest of the country, except for Quebec, yes, the better it is for everybody, and go on for another uh, 75 years. But in the same token, we got to look after people that's contributing to the CPP, and and, and we got to take a look at different things too. Like uh, if a someone's entitled to it at 60, why can't you get the max versus 70? I mean, yes, okay, I heard that part. Yeah. Yes, uh, you heard that part. But what I'm saying. 
saying is even if the person is working or not, the the better, the more we enhance it that way, the better it is. And, you know, that's just my take on it, Patty. Appreciate the, t- the time and the call, Daryl. Thanks a lot. R- right again. Thank you for your time and all the best to you and your listening audience. You too. Take care. Take care. All right. Right Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, school busing and brush cutting and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two is taking one to the PC member for Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Good morning, Loyola. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. How about you? Good, by good. Just calling regarding the uh, questions that I asked in the House of Assembly last week regarding busing, and a couple of things came up. One was, okay, there are three people short, which, you know, we acknowledge that and hopefully can get that filled because it's important to get these bus inspections done and complete, you know, and that doesn't take into account that people that could be off on disability or injured or whatever the case may be. I mean, they got to they gotta allow for some of that too, and that happens in every workplace that, you know, you pay people and stuff happens that, you know, you can't work and then, you know, you can't just go hire someone else, but to get three vacancies. So that's the important message in that, that we get these filled so, you know, we can allow for that. And the second question that I had asked was, on the inspection site, they haven't updated that since May. So it's it's important that if they do the inspections, it puts everybody to rest to say, okay, the inspections are there, we can go look at them if our kids are on it or anybody's kids are on it, that they'll be able to go in and look at those inspections see that they're complete. But right now, they're not there for people to go in and check. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have to have a full complement of inspectors to the Highway Enforcement Group, and they say they're three short out of a full capacity of 33. So in your estimation, does that mean we're not getting school bus inspections done? Because the schedule is very, very clear. My understanding, even when I checked in with people in the industry, is that the inspections are being done on time as per the schedule. So what are your thoughts? I'm saying that the inspections are done from the bus perspective. They got to inspect their buses, I think, twice a year, every six months that they do. But the government has gone and inspect them after that once a year. So, uh, you know, I know the buses have been inspected, no question about that. But from the government side, are they all done at 100%? Or, you know, when are they done? And if they are done, why aren't they putting them on the website? That That is the question. You know, why isn't that there? That That's that's where I've been too with it. And that's the questions we ask as the opposition. we got important questions to ask, and, and you know, we'll do that. That's, that's our job, right? Well, absolutely. You know, because we've had some concerns with buses here over the years, whether it be contracts suspended, and that that one to me is I still can't wrap my mind around it. So, yeah, there was a tragic accident, and it was deemed exactly that, and yet the contract goes away in full for the company. And you say that there was, you know, overarching or systemic issues with the company, yet exactly what we did after that was use their drivers and buses. So, I don't really yeah, know. Exactly, you know, that's, and they're doing an investigation, but, you know, we need when we get the answers, we need to hear them and see what the issues are. So that's, you know, that's very important. Patty, the second reason I called in is, you know, I go to some functions on the weekend. Uh, this weekend I was in Calvert. Uh, two weeks ago I was in Trapassi on the weekend. And I get a lot of people, you know, really coming up to me and asking me about the brush cutting in the area. And when you leave, you know, when you leave from, uh, my district goes from uh, Pity Harbor, Maddox Grove, all the way to St. Shots. And there's certain areas that don't have that issue, but there's some areas that are really, really bad. And when you're driving in the nighttime, like I was on Saturday night, and and the wind is blowing and it's, blow- and it's raining sideways when this brush is out on the road and the leaves are coming out like you are on pins and needles driving and even when you leave every function they say be careful of the moose you know you don't it's really important I know that the uh 
the government did come out with a tender for October 19th. Uh, not sure who was awarded to yet. Uh, you know, hopefully that gets out and gets done because the next thing you know, this this fall is going to be gone, and then they can't do it in the spring or the summer because uh, you know uh, nesting or migrating birds. Then you know I, we we need to get that done, and that that's really important for the safety of the people in in all districts. To be truthful, you know, it's a, it's very important. The alders grow like weeds. I mean, that's the problem. You can go ahead and brush cut and push them back from the shoulder of the road, and we have to because from where I sit, my best opportunity to protect myself from a moose that charges into the road is the ability to see it. So, number one, that added in the rest, time of day, speed, and all the rest of it. I don't know why in some occasions, especially when there's a steep shoulder where the moose, even if the alders are back, you really have a hard time seeing it, but then it gets further complicated with them, you know, hanging right over the shoulder of the road. I don't know why we just don't grub the land and do the best we can to keep them from growing back as best we can. Now, they will be because those alders are pretty resilient and they'll grow once again like weeds. You can cut them back and in very short order, they're right back to the full steam. No question, Patty. And like I've seen the crew in uh, Bay Bulls this morning as I drove out the road and they're cleaning out you, you couldn't believe how good it looks after it gets done. The alders are growing out through the guardrails. You couldn't see the guardrails. Now you can see them clearly. gives more room for snow to be pushed off the road. And it's a safety issue. And, you know, that's something that I, I think, and I've mentioned it before in the House of Assembly, that we should have a maintenance plan for this, that you do the whole island. You could do certain sections at Avalon this year, and you go back in five or six years and do it again. Like, if you did that on a rotating basis, the same as doing maintenance on vehicles, and it's a whole province. I mean, sometimes these departments do not have the equipment to do it. So the Department of uh, Transportation, they don't have the equipment to do it. So they got to contract it out. But they could be doing this on a, a monthly or a, you know, a yearly a yearly thing all across the islands. And every seven or eight years go back and do a district again if it's grown in. And it's a maintenance. This is just maintenance, right? So I really don't know the answer. This is why I'm asking. So what is the formal plan for brush clearing? Like, is it based on a need basis or is there a rotation of crew or how does it actually work? Well, the department themselves don't do it, but we put in requests for certain areas of brush cutting. And, uh, you know, I've been in four years, and the only ones that get done that I've seen are the ones that when you get certain sections of paving. And, you know, we've had uh, Wetless Bay line done, and you've done a great job on it. You can go in there and drive across Wetless Bay line, other than the middle of a bit of paving. But, you know, with the issue of brush cutting, when they do the, when they do the roads and the uh, paving part, they do the brush cutting, and they do a very good job because the companies that are there are doing that. It must be a part of their contract. But other than that, you know, it's not, uh, it's not being completed where areas that I came through the other night, I'm going to tell you, it is scary. You're coming 60 or 70 kilometers an hour. You're trying to take your time. It's raining. It's, it's dark. You can't see anything. And along with with the you know the alders on side of the road, they're dropping their leaves. Now they're going on the road. It makes it a little bit slippery at times if it's raining. You know, so it's, uh, it's something that uh, should be looked at and, uh, and get it into a maintenance plan to be done every six or seven years or seven or eight years. And then, you know, it, it's sort of taking care of itself. I don't know what we do about the issue of the leaves dropping onto the roadway, but I guarantee you, mucky wet leaves are absolutely slippery like ice. They just yeah. are. The other day in our neighborhood, I live in a pretty old tree neighborhood, and we had a pretty significant uh, gust of wind or sustained gusts of wind that day. Then it rained, and I'm telling you, the road was slick. 
It is, it is slick. And I, I know from driving, you know, you take your time, but still, when you say leaves on the road, if the brush cutting was back, those leaves would land in the ditches or on the sides of the roads, not on the road. When the brush when the brush was not caught, it was right on the road. So they got nowhere to go but on the road. You know, if it was cut back more, then they'd be falling down in the ditches. Not all of it now, but, you know, most of it would be falling down in the ditches or on the sides of the road. So, you know, it's just something that I wanted to bring forward. And I really get, every time I go in the district, there's always a question about brush cutting, always. But I certainly thank you for your time, dear buddy. I appreciate Yours. Thanks, Loyola. Okay, Patty. Take Thanks. care. Bye-bye. It's Loyola O'Driscoll, the PC member for Fairland. You know, the argument being made in many corners, if specifically when we're talking about animals on the roadway, moose in particular, is in some areas, is there really any drawback? And never really heard a conversation that included cost for construction of fences and maintenance of fences. Are they the be-all and end-all? Probably not, but they're certainly way better than even if we're talking about the time of day that you drive, the speed with which you drive, the cutting back of the alders, all those things. And nothing slows me down on the highway uh, any more than one of those big wooden moose cutouts you know just that reminder that visual reminder that you are entering a zone that's notoriously dangerous with moose and the moose vehicle collisions that can happen in those areas but has anyone ever done the math regarding what certain stretches of fencing would look like what it would cost you know, I don't think we have. The places in the province where the fences are in, you absolutely do see a vast reduction in the number of these moose vehicle collisions. In other provinces where the uh, fences are in place, the data is pretty clear. They're very effective. Now, there could be times of the year where the snow banks get high enough where the fences can be jumped by a moose, and you sometimes will see moose on the other side of the fence, meaning on the road side of the fence. Those things are inevitably going to happen. But I don't think anyone is oblivious to the fact that it's potentially dangerous out there and there's plenty of moose and yes they will be crossing the roads repeatedly and they are quite skittish and it can happen in a heartbeat you can still be going slow in the middle of the day and still find yourself in a very precarious position when it comes to a moose running across the road but have we ever done the math on the fencing necessarily then you think back to the whole moose radar detection system which was a farce you know it just didn't work and so the money's spent on it i wonder how many meters or kilometers of fencing could have been installed for the uh, overall cost of those moose detection sensory systems which were absolutely foolish all right we're on the twitter box we're vocm open line you know what to do email address is open line at vocm.com we have one more segment in the show that you can take advantage of so if you're in the st john's metro region the number to dial 709-273-5211 elsewhere toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 we're taking a break and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Yes, uh, Patty, this is Bill. Hi, Bill. I was wondering, uh, a few years ago, they had moose whistles they used to put on the vehicles. And I was wondering if they were a good deterrent for uh, getting them away from the road. It's an excellent question. So I do remember when living in Alberta, this kind of stuff was in the news all the time, right? Whether it be with moose and notably deer and elk. And they talked about what they call out there, the deer whistles. If I remember correctly, a researcher at the University of Alberta basically said, you know, some of the markets, some of the way that the whistles are marketed are pretty flawed. And I think the quote directly from this gentleman was, bottom line, they don't really work. So I get the concept. I mean, if you're able to scare an animal back into the ditch or back into the brush, whether it be with a, a whistle or a bell or whatever, it sounds like it makes sense to me. But 
but I'm not really sure that they actually work. Now that you planted that seed in my mind, I'm going to see if I can find that report because he did it for Transport Canada. Then there was also a bunch of uh, uh, footnotes that were associated with work being done in the northeastern United States, which will have huge deer numbers in particular. So I'm going to find that. I hadn't thought about moose whistles in a while. Uh, okay, then. Thank you very much for that information. No problem. Appreciate the call. Yep. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. You know, they were marketed as if that was it. No worries ever again. If you put a couple of these whistles on the top of your rig, you won't find yourself uh, encountering a deer, a moose, an elk, or a bighorn sheep, or whatever the case may be. And now, of course, it's the 90s, so it's been a while since I lived in Alberta. But I'm pretty sure I can recall our report and a lot of news stories surrounding it because collisions in that province. Now, in some places, like in the National Parks, Banff in particular, they do a lot of stuff to keep animals off the road. Extensive fencing systems where they actually funnel the animals under the highway with an underpass to keep them from running across the road. It doesn't mean that you won't see animals on the road because you absolutely do. But it's the reduction of the numbers which also leads to, obviously, fewer collisions so now that he's mentioned moose whistles which i haven't thought about in a long time i'll find that particular report i can almost remember his name as a matter of fact dr rob find or dr rob found or something like that anyway i'll see if we can figure that one out but just maybe just some of that mathematics associated with the cost of putting the fences in the cost of maintaining the fences and all of those types of things that people will argue is the number one go-to protection And it's probably true. And then you think about how we say we shouldn't drive at night. Night is obviously more dangerous than daylight hours, but the absolute worst times for visibility, certainly including moose, is dawn or dusk. That's when it's the haziest kind of light, which actually makes it vastly different and much, much worse than the pitch black you'd experience throughout the day, the, pardon me, the nighttime hours. Anyway, someone asked me uh, already this morning via email about the most uh, recent fall fiscal update and the way the numbers are presented, whether it be with uh, inflation, and in this province it's 3.5% which is the second lowest in the country, the household spending at 4.4%, which outpaces the inflation rate. But a lot of those numbers are fine if you are talking about, you know, 100,000 feet above sea level. But even just some of those numbers that we've heard brought forward regarding you know, CPI, uh, immediate, pardon me, average wage gone up in the province. I saw Dr. Doug May from Memorial University posting it about average wages up 5.7% year over year. That's where stats are sometimes really hard to jibe with what's actually happening for so many people. As opposed to those types of averages, maybe you back out the top and the bottom 10% and get much more into the uh, median uh, income and what that means and its pace with consumer price index, what it means for inflation, what it means for household spending. Because maybe I just live in a very unique world where I hear, hear more about the problems than the upsides, but add into it inside the fall fiscal update. And there was tons of numbers, and there always will be when we talk about the uh, economics of it all. So the budget shortfall has come back to earth somewhat, $154 million versus the $160 million we were told about in the spring. Then really jumped off the page is that a lot of that was associated with the fact that there have been $204 million of forfeitures from oil and gas companies that didn't follow through with land purchases through the CNLOPB, of which there were zero bids this year. So that's the double-edged sword, isn't it? An additional $204 million to offset budgetary concerns, but that's also the loss of the economic opportunity, and that's not about pro-oil or anti-oil, that's just numbers on the page. Then government expenses up almost $200 million, 
some of which, uh, a significant portion of which, came with the results of collective bargaining and other pots of money that were put forward. By borrowing requirement, $700 million, up by $700 million, pardon me. So net debt is now up almost a billion dollars, now to eclipse $17 billion. Then there's the whole concept of the future fund. I wish I could wrap my mind around this. When the government provincially created the Future Fund, it was for projects or uh, extraordinary circumstances and or they could withdraw monies from that Future Fund to pay down debt. So with the cost of borrowing so high, and that's it, straight from the minister, responsible minister, Cody yourself, about some of the impact on additional government expenses is the higher interest rates on debt servicing. So at the exact same time that we're acknowledging that, to take $130 million and put it in the future fund and have to actually borrow that money for that purpose, still trying to find someone who can explain to me how that makes any sense. Because where I sit with my limited knowledge on this front, I just don't know how borrowing a significant cost to service said debt to put another $130 million in a futures fund, which was intended to borrow from to pay down debt, is sort of a real contradictory position that the government has articulated. Also, and I think this is the most interesting revelation in the fall fiscal update, you know, when we talk about the issue regarding... Uh, housing and whether it be the way it's managed at the Newfoundland Labrador uh, Housing Corporation and or just housing supply in general. When we're told by the numbers gleaned from Stats Canada that we're going to have to build 10,000 units a year over the next six years, consequently 60,000 units, this year province is on pace to build 899. 899. That's down 34.8% from 1379 last year. So when you try to compare that number, 10,000, to 899, even if the five-point plan and other incentives that have been put forward are going to work, boy, they're going to have to work a lot quicker than we've seen in the recent past. All right, let's, uh, final word this morning goes to line number two. Kevin, you're on the air. Yes, hello, Patrick. Hi there. How are you? Okay, thanks for asking. How about you? Yes, uh, I'm a senior citizen, 82-year-old. Okay. Which is unfortunate. <laughs> but the, the point is, uh, uh, I need my car uh, a tire put on it. I got her jacked up in the ring. Okay. But I can't lift the tire to put around the ring. So you need is there some... anybody out there in Wonderland <laughs> that'll be able to help me? I don't know of an organization or a company that does uh, this type of work for free for seniors, but there are some mobile uh, tire changing companies here in town, which is very efficient, but it does come with a price. Are you looking for free assistance, Kevin? Well, definitely. That's what I wouldn't phone you otherwise. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's common sense, free. Right? Fair enough. So what I will say is I don't know off the top of my head who might be able to perform that service for you, but I know. But if you do know, uh, would uh, name look after the call? Absolutely. Yeah, if anyone says they're willing to help you out, uh, an 82-year-old senior, and you just say you have one tire that needs to be put back on the car? That's all, sir, yes. Okay. I got it checked out. Yep. And I started the, the well, I put the, the jack on it, and I got a rope. I got the lungs broke, but I, I know I'm not capable, as you know. I mean, say so, uh, an individual 82-year-old. <laughs> yeah. you got to watch, uh, watch everything, right? Well, we don't want you to get broke up uh, doing that. So oh. if anybody, where are you? What part of the province are you living in, Kevin? I didn't hear Newfoundland. 
Yeah, but I mean, if someone in John. St. John's is willing to do it, but you live in Cornerbrook, that's no good. So yeah, we're... I live in St. John's, sir. Okay, yes. you're in St. John's. I know, I know that. I quite uh, quite aware of that. <laughs> no, you wouldn't expect someone to come to Cornerbrook and then fix uh, put a tire on for me, would you? No, that's why I asked where you are, just in case someone yes, who's listening right. is St. willing John's, to. Yeah. Okay. St. John's uh, Centre, actually. No problem. Well, we'll put the pitch out here uh, live as we speak. If you're in yeah. and around town, the center of the city in particular, and you can help Kevin put one tire back on his rig to spare his poor old back and everything else, please do let us know. We have Kevin's number. If you call Dave Williams, we will connect you with Kevin, and that would be much appreciated. I really appreciate it, Paddy. Good luck, Kevin. Let me know what happens. Thank you, man. You're welcome. Take bye. care. All right, bye-bye. Bye. So there you go. If anyone is around that is able to lend a little elbow grease to Kevin and get that tire back on his rig in the center of the city, he and I and everyone else would appreciate it. All right. Final check-in on the Twitter box for VOCM Open Line. You know what to do there. You can offer commentary on the conversation you've heard on today's program, suggest some content maybe for tomorrow or uh, shows in the future via that social media platform, which is a wild site these days. Also, our email address is openline at vocm.com. There has been some questions. You know, there was a conversation about CPP. And, yes, I made mention of the fact that, you know, it's managed by an independent body from government, and they are managing $575 billion. There is a requirement by law for Canada's chief actuary to do a sustainability report on CPP. The most recent report that came out December of last year said in its current form, investment model and what have you, and the contribution levels, sustainable for the next 75 years. The implications of Alberta's withdrawal and how much money that will take out of the pot is always going to be a fascinating conversation to follow. They do have the opportunity insofar as the legislative structure of CPP to uh, withdraw from and then the people say well, why can't we be like Quebec well you can is the short answer and uh, Quebec was never part of the CPP so a little bit of a different circumstance alright good show today big thanks to all hands who support the program and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's open line on behalf of the producer David Williams I'm your host Patty Daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye bye